welcome to another episode of the Path Podcast with Tawny, Nathan, and Ock, where we invite you to come hang out in one of the best bike shops around and enjoy the banter. Compliments of the Path Bike Shop in Tustin and Tribugo Canyon, California. Yeah, well, you know, that's just like uh, your opinion, man. Well, I feel like I have to do an intro, but I just did an intro, but that was recorded. But we're all here. (laughs) And welcome back, Brandon. Brandon. Hang on. Oh, Brandon, you there? Oh, I'm here now? Yeah, you're there now. I'd hit the button. (laughs) Don't confuse Brandon with Brendan, because they're the two most most frequent guests. Did you hear me? Guess host. I just lisped. You did. (laughs) That's weird. (laughs) <laughs> uh brandon lead mechanic what's your official title now just dude duder <laughs> dude mini hats or L- if you're into just the whole gravity i thing. like service manager service manager yeah. mr there's, manager there's so much service in bikes is it mr manager or do we just say manager no, no not mr neither, manager neither you're mr manager bo is my, those are my, that's my initials. He call me B.O. So roll into the shop. If you got a bike ailment, you say, yo. What's up, B.O.? Where's B.O.? Sure. I'll probably be there greeting you. <laughs> Creator of the bike bike check, check-in check list. Yeah. Now, I mean, now that I actually... The current one. Now that I live closer to the shop, too, I'm pretty much there seven days a week <laughs> with my son on the weekends. I want to call you maestro of the suspension, except I think there's some conflict with the term maestro and uh-huh. giant. They but picked a good name. That's a good word. It is. It is. It teaches you. You're the artiste. It teaches you how to a, Artiste how to of bike. the shock absorber? I would say Brandon student. is... Student. And Brandon is currently the um, head student of suspension at the Path Bike Shop. Yeah. Student. Nice. Nice. The head student, though, which means since we're all students, he's the... Is that like chief resident? Maybe. Could be. Chief resident of suspension. And you have interns? Nope. No? Kind of. I mean, Well, I would say interns, More students. I would say a team. Mm-hmm. When do you become Brand- chief of surgery? I mean, I would say we have two Zachs and a Connor and several other people who are on the suspension team. Ah, who else? excellent. Oh, Mike and Jesse Lyon. Too. Mike and Jesse Lyon are on. Oh, Jeeves and, and Dean and, and Dean built our first nitrogen um, filling. Right, apparatus. we have even other leaders on the suspension team other than yeah. just Brandon. So I just want to know: Is part of the initiation when one of your young underlings that is coming up and talks about the dampening, <laughs> and you just smack him upside the head? Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But that just does, always ex- comes just up. Just hand him an espresso. Hmm. Like an, even though, like a mechanical engineer student will use the word dampening. Oh, and, you, and, and then man. and those ones are tough because you're like, actually, well, didn't you, <laughs> you actually and actually, mm. Nathan? Didn't you say nuclear one time or something? I'm sure I did. I have a tough time hearing that one. I remember I had an English teacher who went over that word. Is it nuclear? Is that how you're nuclear? To say? Right, nuclear. like a nucleus. Yeah, but not okay. nuclear. Right. Nuclear. Right. That's what she said. <laughs> Not like a nucleus, like a nucleus. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. So, I just enjoy the fact that you actually didn't actually. I didn't even realize that. So, the, the background to that is engineers, when they come into bike shops, typically think they know more than at least... Six oh, out of ten of their surrounding people. Like an, oh, is it and it's, yeah, so then they say, 
Well, actually, when yeah. you try to, so so when it's the customer engineer, I find it charming in a way. <laughs> to me, it's when it's the vendor engineer that does it that I'm like, oh, uh, do you even know what a stereotype you're being? And like right now, I'm your customer, right? Like, rain that put a, put I a mean, leash when, on that dog. When it's a customer, it's like, yeah, I'm here to serve you, mm-hmm. and right. and. If I know something that you don't know, it's my job to do that tactfully. It's my job to like get back on the same page with you tactfully. But, and and if it also, if you know something I don't know, it's also my job to get back on the same page tactfully. Whereas if I'm your customer and you're an engineer, I feel like it's your job to get back on me with the same page tactfully, whether I have something to learn or you have something to learn. And if what I'm telling you is that the part is in my hand and it's failed, it might be you that has something to learn. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right, that's, that's it. That's yeah. enough. I've, I've, I am definitely well, feeling a little thorny tonight, so sorry. Well, that really it happens. Then sometimes they that vendor will like repeat the sales pitch. You know what I mean? Like they're in a corner and they just or the they testing. default back to the sales pitch. They'll tell you the like, testing. They'll tell you the testing of why what you're telling them can't be true. As a person who works in product development and has been on the receiving end of this information, I don't know what it is about our psychology. I'm in this group. It happens. Um, all I can say is the initial wave, the, the, the first level call response of this is, uh, you don't know what you're talking about. You're wrong. I'm going to go with, <laughs> I'm going to go with, um, I'm going to throw a theory out there and I probably shouldn't, but I'm going to talk about why enough. that's the psychology. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of that if you're, if you're a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Yeah. So if your job entails explaining stuff to people all day that they don't understand, yeah. Then everything looks like someone who needs to have something explained to them that they don't understand. <laughs> right. <laughs> the, uh, the the head of my R and D department. He's a he he's an engineer. He came up and now he's a VP of R and D. Uh, and he he's at past jobs and he now has this reputation. Now it's like don't look at me in that tone of voice. <laughs> like, he he's an engineer. He's not an actor. And he does. Think we all think we're smarter than everybody around us to a certain extent at times. If we're extreme narcissists, <laughs> sometimes it happens. Uh, but we are not actors. Wait, what's it? Shows. It's the Dunn Kruger effect, I think. What explain the Dunn Kruger effect? I think I, I might be remembering the accurate name for it, but it's the idea. It's the it's the tenant. It's the the bias to thinking that you're smarter than you are. Yeah, probably. And a lot of people suffer from it. Probably. And a lot of people also suffer from thinking they're not as smart as they are, though, too. So Right. I, I can say also, though, as an engineer that's developed a product that goes into market, um, when you hear there, there's a, there is an internal fight that happens when someone brings up something and you know you considered that and you hoped it wasn't going to be a problem. And then someone says, oh, it's a problem. You feel the back of your neck start to burn and you're like, run, run. No, you're wrong. No, no, no. And that's kind of what happens. So I've been going to therapy lately, and it's been helping me deal how to like learn how to not be triggered as much. <laughs> I'm sure every engineer could use. I think we because that is that what you just described. I think is the I, that's being triggered, right? But there's also it's your 
it's your baby and you hoped it wasn't a problem and you convinced yourself it wasn't going to be a problem. And then some guy's sitting there telling you and showing you how it in fact is a problem. Meaning like, oh, I didn't need to test that. It's not going to, yeah, we've used that material before. It's not going to be a problem. And this person might not be a high school graduate and might have like some misspelled words (laughs) and bad grammar in their message telling you it's a problem. It's done broken. (laughs) Yeah. I I had a I had I a, know it's done broken. It wasn't supposed to break like that. Thank you for your observation. <laughs> I I had a person in marketing tell me I didn't spec the right, right screw and after about a day of going like you don't know what you're talking about. Come on. This, and then a day later I'm like shit. <laughs> Even a broken clock is right twice a day. <laughs> Dude, that's such a like uh what is it? What would you call it it's like people trip over that like it's a it's a hurdle like oh yeah pe- like if if you can admit when you're wrong really quickly and easily or be curious enough to see it from a source you wouldn't expect it curious right? is the perfect word yep. if you have cultivated a curiosity for what you're doing in a way that you're learning and you're like oh okay like like i actually i get yeah. stuff come back hey brandon who rebuilt that oh you actually did <laughs> You know what I mean? And it's like, oh, yeah. shit. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. <laughs> what I do wrong? Well, s- some of these engineering projects sometimes are year. You know, it's like, you know, babies out in nine months. Like, these Dude. things are like, you're cooking them for three years. That's a lot. Oh, it's the ebb and flow of like, you love the project. It's your baby. You're fighting for it. And then you hate it. And you're like, get it away from me. I never want to see it again. And it's like, oh, man, what a roller coaster. So yeah. we'll get back to our pitch on why we want to help you lead your engineering department to a more productive, psychological, <laughs> emotional place later. But how about some shop news? We'll start with shop news. We are a bike podcast, right? But we're also um, a philosophy podcast. <laughs> If I have anything to do about it. <laughs> yeah. And as as the proprietor of the Path Bike Shop mm-hmm. and a perennial host of the Path Podcast, I would say you get to make that call. I can't believe you just <laughs> called me a taint. <laughs> Wait a minute. I think I, I think I put the emphasis on the wrong syllable. No, I mean <laughs> Actually, you said. I feel like actually, I should better interpret that as you called me as- associated with a taint. Ah, fair enough. <laughs> like having to deal with taints, <laughs> just like the el of perennium. <laughs> Very close to perennium. Yeah, it's it's some close. People, some people call that. A, never mind. Okay. I would. I would like to think, it, based on the earlier discussion Chug. of the clarity of nuclear and nuclear, I probably said the same thing twice, but. I would like to think we're not playing T-ball, and emphasis makes a difference. Is the toad and the taint? Is the chode and the taint the same thing, or is the chode behind the taint? <laughs> okay, <laughs> Brandon's expression. Yeah, I was thinking that. Extremely thoughtful. Brandon's <laughs> <laughs> like considering. My eyes were looking straight up into my forehead. I'm thinking chode's probably a little bit further forward than the taint. Oh, I was thinking behind. Okay. <laughs> All right. Shop news. The Gooch is where I got kicked when I was a young <laughs> lad playing soccer. That's all I remember. <laughs> oh man. Well, what, what's what's the joke from Weeds where they're sitting sitting similar to how we are? We got two guys at at, at two different tables. There's a coffee table. It's like, what do you call the thing between the dick and the asshole? The coffee table. Duh. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Shop Back news. Show. All right. Laguna Canyon Foundation is doing a trail stewardship day on mentally sensitive in Laguna Can- in Laguna, Eloisa. Um, 8 a.m. on December 14th. 
And you can check that out on thegooniecanyon.org. And I'm all about trail maintenance right now. I'm on like I've always liked trail maintenance, but this is Saturday. I'm on more of a kick than ever. Can I ask a quick question? Yeah. What are your thoughts? And this is something I've always thought. Maybe maybe this is a topic for later. You can put a pin in it, push it down the road. But trail maintenance. I see, especially this time of year when we have rain, I see a lot of people doing earthwork. However, I think in our neck of the woods, brushing, much more critical, can be done at any time. I feel like earthwork is sometimes overrated, okay. but brush work is more critical. I want to have Jesse on for a whole trail maintenance, a trail like trail building and trail maintenance. Maybe like Jesse and maybe a couple other people like like Keith or something for a couple of perspectives. You need somebody to balance them out. I want I want to <laughs> do like a whole like philosophy of trail work and what's good trail work and what's bad trail work and set, like show. We just put a nail in it. But down the road. I will say dirt work is that thing dirt work is that fan like people want to do dirt work. That's the that's, that's the ride fantasy. Mm-hmm. That's the yeah. um it, it that's the thing like oh like sweet dirt work like this that's the thing people feel like they're gonna get their ego struck on it's like right? that meme where it's like four pictures and it's like what people think i'm doing when oh, I do yeah. trail work yeah. what i'm really doing what my mom thinks i'm doing when i do trail right. work what i'm actually doing when it's i do kind of like work. that but to me it's more like in almost every f- area there's the like the glamour role yeah and then there's the like meat and potatoes role Mm-hmm. I feel like I've never had an issue with it. When I see a trail and say it uh, needs maintenance, it's brushing. It's never dirt work. When I do trail work, I usually do brushing if it's on my own or dirt work if I'm with a certain level of trail work person. Ah, That's a enough. good point, though, the distinction between brush work and trail work. Because I so feel I'm like I'm similar with Nathan. I'm confident on brushing on my own because it's a lower skill. To me, that's a little bit lower skill level. Totally. Yeah. That's more just You manual. can't mess it up. That's manual yeah, like labor. If, yeah, yeah. That's actually good for me. You kind of can mess it up, but it's mostly manual labor. It'll come back. Yeah. It'll come, you can't mess <laughs> yeah. it up too badly. I'm totally the guy that's like, we're going to go do trail work tomorrow. It's the one time a year we're going to go do it. We're going to go mess up some berms. <laughs> that's what we're going to do. Right. Or I could just go with some shears and cut, you know, walk a trail and cut some Any branches. day of the year. What I would say totally. is dirt work is the advanced skill level and the glamour shot. Yeah. And the thing that, like, you're going to, like, someone's going to be like, oh, who built that jump or that berm if it's good? Right. And also if it's bad, someone's going to be like, oh, who did that? Yeah. We're but, brushing. It's just, like, pretty much thanks for brushing. Well, and – and, and start there. Like, that's a good starting point. And what's the technological advances of the bikes to handle worse terrain? Oh, you can't yeah. get around brush. <clears throat> and totally. And buy a trail boss tool. Yeah. yeah. So, it really is rarely the dirt. That That's my, my, my complaint with trails or say, hey, this trail's become unrideable, at least in our neighborhood. In our part of the country, yeah, it's mostly because it's brush. Of the brush. Yeah, it's brush. That's totally. and and it's co- every year. It's coming back. It's coming back. It's coming back. It's coming back. So it's also one of those things where brushing the trail is what we need to make the trail be not get worse. Dirt work is either going to make the trail worse or make it better. Right. Mm-hmm. Take that takes skill. Brush work's just labor. Get out there and do, totally. What I would say is get out there and do some brush work and try to get down with some Pick up people some who are known for good dirt work and apprentice, like work with them and be their, yeah. be one of their work mm. laborers and learn the trade, which is yeah. kind of where I'm at right now. Right. 
Like I, I saw some people recently after the rain doing some dirt work on a trail, and I was like, but it needs brush. Like right. Well, totally. Like it, you know, like and I understand. It's like it, the it, people it, that come in for reading. I will say too, bikes though, <laughs> right now at this time of year is, is dirt works if we're yeah, going yeah. into dirt work season. Brush work season is like late spring and early summer, I think, for but the I, most part. You can I think do a lot it any time now. I think a lot of it's people true. neglect brushwork because to your point it's less glamorous and it's less glamorous and everyone wants to go everyone wants to be you know the quarterback and no one wants to be the you know the lineman or whatever like, right but oh, i do but dirt work will I, often i, want I like the smell like i like the I smell of sage <laughs> in the morning but dirt, but but brushing will make a trail all, almost disappear like trails have become virtually extinct totally. because of brushing totally. but not dirt work nope I can ride anything. Yep. But I can't get through a bush. The I know trail a couple, will always like reform if there's dirt there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I know a couple of bushes that need to be cut away. Yeah, totally. <laughs> the one that I just run into. Yes. I run into it every day. I'm yes. just like, and right into the bush. <laughs> yep. Nathan, he was a man who could ride anything. <laughs> except through bushes. <laughs> <laughs> there's just a clip of me riding into a bush. You guys want any more news? Yeah. I know Continue. we're having a lot of fun. Progress. More news. More news. Um, Trail work. Did I talk about Ticketron yet? No. Nope. Okay. Cher is doing a Ticketron Ticketron Trail Work Day um, Saturday, November twenty third, seven thirty sharp. So if you're late, get there early. You know, there's a great line from Mike Perbiglia that is, I forget exactly what it is, but it's to the gist of it is like everything before late is everything, like all of forms of earlier are also on time. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I butchered that. Um, and it's dead on the floor, but 7.30 sharp, Crystal <laughs> Cliff State for Park, um, trail work on Ticketron. Thanks to Cher for putting it on and thanks to anyone who gets out there and joins and, and, you get out there and give back to your community and do some trail work. It feels really good. I recommend it. Yeah. Shares having their board meeting on January 11th. That would be an interesting way to get involved in the community. Can I tell a story? You should tell a story. When I was 16 years old and getting into the mountain bike world, I'm, I'm 37 now, so this is a while ago. I was like, ooh, share a board meeting. Oh, it's like a mountain biker meeting. I thought we were going to like sit around and talk about mountain bikes. <laughs> I showed up to that at 16 yeah. years old, having nothing to offer. <laughs> it was, it's one of my, uh, what do they call those cringe moments? Did it's they ask the you ma- to be on the board when you were 16 years old? <laughs> no. Oh, probably asked him to brush some trails. <laughs> <laughs> were, were you bored? Uh, I was bored at the board meeting, but it was, it was perennial all-stars that we all know and love. So I picture Keith. Yep. I picture Robin probably wasn't there yet. Might've been. He might, he was there. Might've been. Um, and you know, the other one, come on. Oh, Bob. Oh yeah. (laughs) Bob the, uh, yeah. Anyway, okay, we're throwing out too many insider jokes. Back to the news. Was that? A, I don't. I don't even see the punchline. But that's no, good. no, it's just too too many inside in, inside knowners. So you guys know Aaron Gwynn came out to our um, demo day with Intense and Santa Cruz recently. Mm-hmm. Wow, and that was pretty sweet. And Aaron Gwynn personally signed one of his practice helmets for me. That's an, on display at Live Oak. If anyone anyone wants to go see it, you know, it's nice. there. 
Nice. Um, he was super chill and down to earth and authentic and present seeming, which is, those are my values. So I was stoked. Mm-hmm. I talked to him. I was there. And Mountain Bike Allen, who you could YouTube, you could check out Mountain Bike Allen's channel, just like Google Mountain Bike Allen YouTubers, Google search him. Yeah. And he had a video with Aaron Gwynn out there, which is pretty cool. I got to tell him a cool story because you remember when he went over the bars and that gnarly crash? Forget what what track it was, but like he's coming around a corner and like the blew out the rear tire and just went over the bars and oh, like flew off the bike. Fort William, I think. Yeah. 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 This year. And he, Aaron Gwynn posted on his Instagram that clip with it dubbed up to the Ricky Bobby, like Talladega Nights, where he was like, <laughs> he's airborne, you know? <laughs> and I, you uh, Koa saw me, uh, like he was, I was looking at that on my Instagram and he saw it. So like we went oh, okay. on YouTube and we started watching Talladega Nights. So I like told Aaron, I was like, you triggered him to like start watching Talladega Nights. And like, now he's like this expert on Talladega <laughs> Nights, dude. Like it's pretty awesome. <laughs> I think, I think John Gerard is one of the best characters in American literature. I don't know who that guy is. John Gerard. I don't know who that guy is. In Talladega <laughs> Nights. Mm. I don't know who that is. What? He said Koa is an expert. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> you got you to remember. Enough. I'm way out. I'm way out on the media. Okay. But we watched it. Is And the, there's NASCAR racing. <laughs> <laughs> it's the it's the Perrier guy. The French Still guy? Works. The French guy. That's Jean Girard. Oh, okay. That's a good guess. Yeah. Not too many clips with him. Oh, yeah. He has a, he says a cuss word in the movie. Of course, Koa picks on that. He's like, Dad, is that a bad word? <laughs> I just remember the uh, meet the parents thing when he says asshole and the kid just keeps repeating it. <laughs> Talladega Nights, I feel like, is a good... Because, well, Co and I have also started going to the RC car track, so it's been... it's Oh, hey. It's all contextual. Like, Respect. It's cool. Like, it's a, it's a racing movie. My, you know my mechanical mean? abilities were formed at the RC car track, mm. so... This oh, is yeah. a good formative environment. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Legit. The cross-training that I'm getting is like pretty mm-hmm. awesome. It it is it is the best place as a kid to learn to not strip out a screw and to learn when that's going to happen cuz oh, yeah, everything not, everything, everything is strippable. Everything just, screws into plastic. And you know what yeah. Nathan is saying is true. true because he's making his thumb and pointer finger in a circle when he says it. So that means <laughs> it's definitely true. Yeah, he's definitely not working on his truck yet. Oh, okay. But He's you, driving it and you, breaking stuff, and you, I'm working on it. You've stripped out some plastic stuff in that environment. Oh, I well, I'm working on the truck. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, totally. I know. But yeah, it's all. You know what else it's, is weird is that it's all of a sudden I'm. Um, I go to the track. I'll plug it too. It's OCRC. It's in Huntington Beach. It's a rad track. If you've never yeah. been there, um, I become a customer at a bike shop when I'm there. Right. I literally like walk in the door and I'm like. Ooh, that guy looks busy. I don't know if I want to talk to him. <laughs> and I'm like, that guy answered my question last time. I think he knows what's up. You know? and I'm like, okay, I'll just wait for that guy. And then somebody else asks you, and you're like, no, no, I'm good. Uh, well, uh, well, I kind of had a question. <laughs> when you start talking to somebody else, and it's just so funny. Like, I'm like, dang it, like, because they'll sometimes there'll be a customer waiting at the desk and service, you know, and you're like, oh, have you been helped? And they're like, no. And they've been there for like five minutes. You're like, oh, I'm sorry. Like, it's the same way. Like, you're, yeah. you're as a customer, I'm like standing in the RC car, like hobby store, just waiting for like a little AR or something. And I'm like, 
Um, <laughs> you need some help? I'm like, yes. <laughs> it's pretty cool. Oh man, I I spent many many hours in the uh, in the the track RC car the track hobby shop. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like shopping at that track hobby shop because it's got the track attached to it, so you're supporting right. the track. You know, mm. like yeah, it's it's pretty cool. Um, Those guys are the boots on the ground, pretty much, right? Like that's yeah. from from what I'm feeling. Yeah, it's been cool. I've noticed too. Like I've been like, so I used to drive my cars when i was little with my dad not really as an like it's i probably stopped at an adolescent like 13 13 years old i probably was done with rc cars yeah um and now that i'm back and i'm just kind of prepping it for coa to ride or to drive i'm watching the truck now like i'm like marshalling like watching the truck and Uh. i'm like uh-huh, front end looks like it's a little bit high going in there. <laughs> <laughs> no, literally, I'll be like, off the track, like off. And he's uh, like, what? And I'm like, off the track, we got to make an adjustment. Uh, <laughs> you're like, that dad. What? And I'm like, you know, I'm like, we got to lower it. You know, like, try to lower the ride height a little bit. I'm like, I got to rebuild these shocks, Koa. These shocks are blown. Uh, like, it's so rad. I love it. So I, th- I used to race a lot. And so this was the move we used to do is you'd pit near the pros. And, uh, the the trick was you you ruffle through the trash can near the pros because they have the one run tires. Oh, I'm sure. Oh yeah, they have mounted tires and rims. Oh yeah, and they run them like once or twice for race, mm-hmm. and you you be on that trash can. Ah. Yeah. <laughs> well, there's only one track in Orange County, pretty much. Like, yeah. That and so you do get pros out there on practice sure. days, and it is pretty cool. Like and like and, I mean yeah. Like, their skill level is it's amazing to watch oh yeah it's they're so fast yeah yeah all right tawny's back on the news oh we're, we're done with news okay we're done with news okay what's 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 the first topic who's who, it was, brandon, RC, it was rc cars <laughs> <laughs> brandon you're the guest so what's what's new in Shockland? i was thinking Aspen. about that today and it was like uh the last time I'd spoken with you guys, we hadn't even we didn't even have an eleven six for a Firebird twenty nine yet. True. So like, coil on a DW link and doing shocks, and recently started reservicing the. Uh, I pulled apart a Fox transfer post the other day, and yeah, we built got, one of those. You guys are servicing transfer posts. Yeah, those are really cool posts. Um, and just just. Whenever, as we're doing, as we're growing in service, especially with the Fox products, we're just learning how to interact with Fox and how to get parts and like how it works and like, you know, like what, you know, what their stock is and where they, you know, like, yeah, do they even have a warehouse? You know, like, it's like, how do you get the, and it's like, oh, it turns out like it's getting produced in Taiwan and just getting shipped right over. So it's like, um, getting used to that, like, you know, and just, you know. So let, let me ask you this. This is one thing that that I've had stuck in my crawl for a while, and uh, so I've I've been I've had the Scott Ransom for a while, right? And it has a remote lockout. And the Scott Ransom is a great bike. It's a, it's a it's a lightweight frame. It's got a really unique rear shock system. It does simultaneously lock out the front shock, which I could take or front fork, which I could I could take or leave, right? But I can't shake this thought that. You know how to spec out any shock with a remote. And could you graft on some of the Scott Ransom capabilities if I say got a mega tower and said build me a rear custom build me a rear shock and here's what I would ask you for. 
I would ask you for a, a air rear shock with a remote control, like a CTD switch or climb, whatever. I don't know. You tell me. But I want the climb to be super stiff and the open to be open. Could I get, say, a lot of these capabilities baked into another bike because you know how to custom brew me a remote control Fox shock? I would. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Okay. We, here's what. Correct me if I'm wrong, Brandon. You could give him I feel like you even what he just asked know. for in terms of a stiff lockout on a remote on a mega tower on an air shock. But you couldn't give him some of the other things on the ransom, like the like the cha- right. like the mid. It would be a two position, not three. Right. You wouldn't have that middle. Po- well, and, you could use. You could actually just buy a twin lock. Actuator, if, if the person, but there is a three position lock. CTD remote because I've been so you could do three position, like an older one. Uh, I was, like I don't think they, I don't think Fox has a current. I think it would be two position, not three. Okay, they, they have and, a two position, and in so much as being two position, not three, you're also giving up all the other things that go along with that middle position. What was that, that other unusual. one that I sent you? DT Swiss, DT Swiss, DT Swiss makes a rad three position, but um, we remote lock can. But you're still not going to get the adjustable air chain, air volume. It won't right. be a nude shock, yeah, because I can't. Probably, I probably wouldn't be able. I don't think. I think nude is licensed to Scott. But we can rebuild nude shocks. Yeah, I can. Right. So, so to your question, yes, I actually have built uh, a shock that's not of it. So I built one of our riders, Colin Timmermans. He's races enduro, raced all last season, did all the uh, CES stuff. He wanted that sh- exact shock that you're talking about. On a Mega Tower? Exactly. Okay. And so we chose to build a DPX2. Um, That's got a piggyback, <clears throat> yes? It does. Mm-hmm. It's a, It's got a reservoir. It um, doesn't come in that size aftermarket from Fox, and it doesn't come aftermarket in that size with a remote eyelet. So it was just something that we had to scratch build. So we, you right. know, we spec'd it with a remote eyelet. We respect it with the lightest shim stack they offer and then the dpx2 uses what's common in uh suspension world it's what's called a base valve and it uses a base valve to control the like basically the compression and the rebound go through the base valve and there's some to my understanding there's some leaf some fancy leaf springs and some fancy technology in there that i probably couldn't explain at this point but there's different types of them and so we went with a base valve that used the has the firmest lockout setting, um, and then the lightest open setting. So lightest compression shim stack with the firmest base valve in closed mode and the lightest, you know, in in open mode. Right. And then rebound. He wanted it to be light too. So we went with the lightest. Um, Rebound and for that shock, they have linear rebound and digressive rebound stacks. They're able to, I guess, they're able to change the stack configuration and achieve a linear curve with the rebound and a digressive curve. And to my understanding, the compression on that shock is is naturally digressive. So this, okay. so the compression shim stack, we we just suspect it with super light, super firm lock, fast rebound. And and Colin's super <clears throat> stoked. He loves it. He loves it. Right. He says and, it's his favorite thing ever. <laughs> like I got to ride it last week. Colin actually. rides at a pretty high level. Okay. Like I would say he's le- he rides at a legit like local pro level. 
And if yeah. you're if you're doing all the CESs, he had to grunt that mega tower up some steep hills this year. Like he does okay at like local pro enduro events sometimes. Right. Like That's, he'll like he'll it's like, above my pay grade. And he also does okay in like jump contests too. Nice. Like, right. I asked him if he hit that lock when he. I think he said he might on sometimes like hit oh, that wow. lock right before he hits the hits the. That's the, cool. The, nice, but he like the U.S. Open at right. Summit, like any enduro at Summit, he's using that lock. Yeah, because those stages are pedaling. Does he oh, have yeah. a remote? Yeah, he has a remote. He Damn. actually used a RockShock remote. It's above the bar, um, and it and then he he has a one by, um, dropper remote under the bar. That's super cool. So I like that. And you know, he's had some good experience with bikes too. He had a Nomad that he had a Float X2 on that had a CM tune, which is the, the compression medium tune. And we revalved that for the CL. So he got to feel the difference in that. And he really liked how that really opened up the shock. And like it was already good at bump compliance before, but with the CL, it was just like a game changer. Yeah. It just made the thing just like super active and just absorbed all those bumps. So that was cool. And then he went to the Mega Tower and he was like, Yeah, I definitely want a custom DPX for the Mega Tower. Because he had experienced, yeah, you know, yeah, he rebuilt the float X2. So that's super cool. Yeah, it is super cool. The so we can do that, but you know what I just realized? Um, the other week, a week ago, I rebuilt a nude shock, yeah. and it's basically a DPS with a fancy air spring. Okay. So I can revalve your um, your nude shock if that's what if it's yeah. the Fox nude shock. You could go. So they spec those. Sometimes they spec those with like linear compression medium. Okay. You could go to like a light digressive um, piston so assembly. Just to interject real quick for people who we might be we're in over their head anyway. But the nude shock is the Scott. Proprietary like Scott. It's on the Ransoms and the Geniuses. Is it below the Geniuses or just the Ransom and the Genius? And the Spark. And the Spark. Okay. Yep. That was the one that I built was a 42 and a half stroke yeah. stru- uh, right. Spark. Please proceed. Yeah. Well, the, the new, and to describe the way the new string, the new shock works is that it has an air spring in it that's divided into two chambers. And so when you're in the first position, the air spring the error, the positive air chambers reduced significantly to the point where you can only achieve a certain amount of travel in the middle position. It essentially reduces the travel that's in the middle position, right? Right. Yep. Or yeah, the second and it changed and it also changes the damping at that time too. Yeah. A little bit. It moves the, it moves the, um, the compression like cam a little bit and then it fully locks everything out in the third, in the closed position. For for what it's worth on my Scott, I almost on dirt. I'm almost always climbing in the the middle position, and I'm I really like that. Yeah, I like that a lot. I feel like well, so in like Auk and I have been riding a lot, and he's riding a digressive shock, and we've been to- like just talking about the differences in these shocks, like what what's so special about that, and what's the difference, and like. You sent me a video. Nathan sent me a video that had it was an interview with Chris Porter on I forget what website it was. We're we talking Some, digressive compression damping yeah, or digressive both. rebound damping. Yeah, like compression. Both. Let's talk about just compression and ma- mainly. Um, it is both, I, but we'll yeah. talk about compression. Yeah, and I was like, and it was funny because in the interview, like with Chris Porter, he was like talking about suspension design, and he was kind of saying, "Oh, it's all everyone's all on this kind of like." 
they're like digressive. It's all got to be digressive. And he was just making a point. He wasn't really like challenging uh, any kind of like. It's the buzzword of the time, right? It's like I think that's what he was saying, and um, he wasn't challenging anything that like. It's like saying it's enduro in 2013. Yeah, and when in the same sense, progressive is too. All these terms are just becoming more popular, but so Fox shocks can be specced and sometimes and oftentimes are specced with a linear compression valving. So like the damper has a, the way that the piston and the shims are configured. If you were to plot the, like if like it's called a Nathan, maybe can explain it better. Like what's, what do they call a force chart? Like what is the fancy, what's the actual word for that? Uh, you know, if you were to dyno it, let's say if you were to put it on a dyno, I guess is a good way. I to think do. there's a number of ways you can, a, a dyno typically give you a forced displacement curve, meaning on one axis you'll have displacement and one axis you'll have force. But a lot of times damping is speed. I, I don't, sensitive. and I'm not an engineer in this space. I'm speculating. So let's just make that clear. Sometimes it's a speed force right. curve and those, I will admit, I have a tough time, a difficult time wrapping. So a force displacement curve is something you characterize a spring with. Right. And a speed display, a speed force curve is something you'd characterize damping with. And that, for me personally, is difficult to wrap my brain so around. So I think right. in, I think coming from a not fully grasping it point, but also maybe being able to explain to a not fully grasping it point, digress, correct me if I'm wrong, digressive compression damping means that as you, move through the travel the damper actually allows for a faster motion towards the deeper parts of the travel and compression if that would be a way of describing it and it it be it would be sensitive as opposed to progressive meaning as you move through the travel it wants to slow you down deeper and deeper slower slower well the difficult part is velocities it's a velocity function and the assumption is that deeper this? in the stroke, is velocity is... How about this? Yeah. Deeper in the stroke, the more oil is moving through the holes. No, no. Deeper in the stroke, the slower, because it's an arc, right? As oh, you go, I thought that was progressive. No, no. that's where, you got to think of speed. Yeah. Speed, so if, shaft speed. If the assumption is that deeper cycles equates to faster velocity, then what you're saying is true. Well, hold on. So all I'm talking about is... I thought it was either it's as you get deeper into the stroke, it's easier. There's a a bigger hole for the oil. Like it's easier for the oil to flow or as you get deeper in the stroke, it's harder for the oil. No, I don't think that. I don't think that's true. It doesn't change. It's neither of those things. It's a speed speed sensitive. Not you're talking position. So a spring force curve displacement force is positional. sensitive. Okay. So, but okay. Just adjust it then to at a different speed, more oil can flow through. But the assumption is that early in the stroke, the speed is the highest, and later, and the shock is slowing down. The displacement enters the shock at a speed, yeah, and it's slowing it down, down, and the damping slows it down. It's yeah. So there's two contributors to the slowdown: the spring and the damping. And the damping is speed sensitive, and the spring is position sensitive. Now the there's is pressure sensitive as well. Correct. Now here's here's so. where it gets dicey. This is my understanding, Brandon. We, we might have to do more research on this, but the EXT shocks. Ooh, I can talk about that a little bit. Are positional sensitive damping? 
And I think that's what makes them special. So you're, so with digressive compression damping, as you get deeper into the – or as you slow down, you get more oil flow. No. No. You get more, less oil less. flow. Right. So like we can simplify it by saying lower velocities, more damping, higher velocities, less damping. And if you were to plot it on a, a, a velocity force chart, like a speed-related force chart, yeah. Say well, it one more time. Lower velocities, less damping, higher velocities. Lower velocities, more, more damping. Lower velocities, more damping. Mm-hmm. Right. So you let's say you take a you take a four you look at you're looking at a chart that's describing a constant speed. So let's say I don't know how to really explain this. The what you'll see is like on a high speed cycle, a digressive piston will sort of what they call blow off. So the oil the 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 support coming from the damper will sort of taper off. So you'll kind of you'll get this rising rate and then it'll kind of flatten out. But that's more oil flowing. Oh dude, look at this chart right here. Hey, sorry, sorry, listeners, stand by. I but just opened the race what, textbook. Isn't what Brandon just said more oil flowing as that it is, slows down? But uh, no, so like, so let's say you have that is a progressive, okay, digressive so as, damping curve, right? So as velocity increases, the amount of support from the damper of a digressive damper decreases, or the amount of support from a progressive damper increases and when he says support he means resistive force less right. oil moving resistive force. less oil moving yeah right so when asking myself to go back so to where my in the travel are we seeing less oil flowing and more oil flowing in an aggressive curve? typically Mid-stroke. deep in the travel the speed slows and early in the travel speed is high okay so what, that's what i think is a curveball about that is that's kind of the opposite of what you think of progressive and digressive for a spring correct correct so and and just to clarify what we just opened up um if any listeners are curious about it's a it's a great book and, and I think it's cross discipline compatible it is the race tech's motorcycle suspension bible and it has the first um oh the first 100 pages are suspension theory which talk about uh just compression bump control, basically what you're trying to achieve with a suspension system. Um, and one of the early chapters, it says, uh, you know, a bump is a bump damping is damping, you know, this is for motorcycle, but it's, it's very applicable. So if you're ever curious about the theory, this is, this is a great book. Well, so you asked where in the stroke are we kind of talking about is for like a bump, like a medium size. Well, what I'm trying to figure out is, with digressive damping, when is more oil flowing and when is less oil flowing? Got That's it. speed. Got it. So at, it is speed, but it is also the position of it. But, because but at when the top speed? Of, like right. where – like So at the top like of the, the stroke – Is it flowing – I think I heard the answer, but I'm still wrapping my head around it. More oil is flowing at – Higher Mid-stroke to deep Higher cycle. speeds, which is more towards the beginning of the travel. Wait, wait, wait. No, no, no. Branding? No. So like, I thought the speed slows down as we get deep into the travel of compression. That's my understanding as well. Okay. So, well, 
Oh, we're unraveling. Sorry. <laughs> it's going to have to slow down because eventually it's going to stop. Correct. Correct. It's the, Well, you the, think about it like you jumping on a trampoline. Like as you're coming down in the speed and you touch the trampoline, you're going faster. And then the trampoline starts to slow you down, slow you my down, understanding slow you down to a I, stop and then springs you back. My under, and and I'm really about to maybe learn that I was wrong. But my understanding of digressive damping was that deeper in the travel, regardless of whether it's from speed or force, that deeper in the travel, more oil was flowing. And I think yes. I was wrong. No, no, no. That is right. So with digressive valving, deeper in the travel, more oil is flowing. So that makes it not counter into, that makes it not counter to like what is progressive versus digressive on a spring. It makes it the same. Right. I was kind of confu- confused on. when you deeper said Deeper in that. the travel, say it again, actually. Sorry. Deeper, deeper in, the travel. in the travel, more oil is flowing. Right. So, like, because in order to get deeper in the travel, it's got to have some velocity. It's got to be reaching some velocity to overcome the spring. So, most likely, you're talking about a fast cycle. When you're talking about a deep cycle, you're talking about a bump that's coming at a speed that's overpowering. We're also the talking about we're already slowing down, and the purpose of damping is to slow you down, so you don't need as so, much damping. Wait, well, wait, can, wait. Can okay, I let's get off the let's get let's off let the Nathan subject. Clarify something. Oh, I just wanted to clarify what Brandon, what I believe Brandon is saying when he says digressive damping deeper in the travel, more oil is flowing. What he means is as compared to progressive damping, it's allowing more, but from a velo- so high shaft velocities. No, no, but all I was asking is when is the damper restricting oil flow more and when is it allowing oil flow more? So it's, it's a constant. Not when is the oil flowing more, but when is the damper restricting it more? When is the hole smaller? Or the okay, or, so like, what Brandon is saying is um, deeper in the travel, digressive damping is allowing more oil to flow. Right, that's what I and thought And progressive damping is, uh, is restricting oil more. More and more as you get which deeper into the travel. flip that for force application, but what... Whoa, whoa, I right. lost you. So like flip <laughs> that, like... No, no, meaning... When you allow more oil to flow, you're imposing less force. Right. Less resistance to motion. So you're correct. In the, in a, more, in a, you're allowing it to move faster. Right. Yes. Right. 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 So, but I think what's important to differentiate here is early in the stroke of a shock, more oil is flowing. Right versus a, later. No, that, but that's the, yeah, yeah. that's not the question I was asking. Well, okay, okay. Well, I was that, asking when is there more resistance to that oil flow right. from the damper? So and, no, no, no. Wait, wait. But this is this is a important differentiation. Is when you're the ask your question one more time. When is there more resistance to the oil flow from the damper? Are you asking when is it comp- <laughs> is it digressive or progressive or when, it, when it's digressive? Is it moving towards less resistance to the oil flow as we get deeper in the travel, or is it moving I, towards more I think resistance to the oil flow as it gets deeper in is the travel? Maybe the question to ask as well is not when, but how. So, like, right. because it's, it's how. So, like, if the bump is a large square edged bump, the velocity of that, the shaft velocity is going to be high to get you deep. Like, it's going to be high to get you deep. Correct. And so. Um, that's going to allow more oil flow. Correct, because it's a high velocity. And then as you get further into the travel, the yeah. the, the velocity is slowing down. Yep. And then 
it's it takes more force to get through because in a digressive the lower the velocity the more force it takes right now if you're now say you're railing a berm railing a a a, a corner a bermed corner and you're slowly pushing like that force is coming on slow like the shaft velocity is slow because it's 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 Sh- pushing the slowly. shims are closed and the orifices yeah, are tight so you could slowly be pushing through the entire travel because the, the velocity is slow. Right. And right. in that case, it doesn't matter when. It's, where it's you're at in the stroke. Where you're at in the stroke. It's going to provide a high level of damping through yes. that entire travel. Well, you know what's yes. funny? Is are people digressive? Mar- yes. That's yes. digressive. Because you so could be- it's moving slow, it's providing more restriction to oil flow? Correct. Right. Right. And when it's moving fast, it's providing less restriction to oil flow. Right. right. So it's right, right here on so the like, chart. This, so, so like, that's the opposite of what was being said a minute no, ago. No, no, no. I think I mean, because we've, because we've been we going weren't back and forth. No, 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 no. Because we weren't clarifying the type of the type the of speed bump, the, the speed. velocity. Right. So what we were talking about earlier, Tani, and sorry, this is this is what Adam Carolla calls bad pod because I'm pointing at a chart. We were talking about up here. Bad now Ock is talking about down here. Well, yeah, we, I, I follow well, that, no, but I, I think we there's were still something that doesn't quite add up. Okay, well, here's I got it. Here's what is because we were we were trying to kind of meet where you were your understanding no, no, no. was. Which what I'm was saying like, is low speed. At low speeds, are we getting more oil flow or less oil flow than at high speeds? That's what I want. Less oil flow with digressive at low speeds. Okay, and then what we were saying and, is that like when was this happening? As far as like. Depth position. of the str- yeah position, and so we were saying, well, well, if, if you're assuming ha- that it, if you're assuming that a deep cycle is fast velocity, then ago, this, then the yes, then it's happening less, at the end. I might be wrong, but a minute ago, I think we said we were getting less oil flow deep in travel. Which assuming if, if that getting, it was a fast hit, assuming it was an impact, assuming that it was not a, bump. a not a so like a G out what Aqua was but describing. No matter what deep in travel, we're slowing down. Yes, but you could be getting there with a steady force slowly. Or a high force. But either quickly. way, it's at a slower part of the speed of the range. Well, you of could speed. have a you could have a con- so like in a G out, you essentially have a constant velocity from the initial travel all the way down to bottom. Right. So right. like you could have a slow like this slow compression. That's a linear. That's just the whole. That's velocity is the same speed. And so yeah. like it's it's essentially restricting flow. Uh, it's there's a high restriction of flow through the entire travel. Right. Initial or low. So I was trying to understand if there's a high restriction of flow deep in travel on, a, on big hits. So on big hits. And, so to Nathan's point, on a big hit, extremely high velocity is going to happen initially in the travel, right? Because right, it's like, right. boom, square edge. And then it's decelerating, like the velocity is decelerating, right. say, in the last 20%. As it's decelerating, the amount of force is... The amount of it's backing off. Correct. So it, it's we're, we're off. settling on at or slower it's in, on speeds. On a digressive, it's more increasing. resistance to oil flow with digressive. Correct. Right. Okay. Slower and then speed. We flipped on that a couple of times. That's yeah. all I've been trying to ask. Right. So yeah. slower to speed, go back to the question, yes. The question was curl. like linear. I was the linear versus digressive. Like, why is digressive the thing? Why do I feel like it's the the thing that I want? It? Like. If somebody comes in and they want their suspension feeling better, how come I'm choosing a digressive valve set? And like, how come people yeah. are, and then they ride their bike and they go, wow, you know, it's, it's because a linear valve doesn't have the ability to blow off. It always constantly provides support. If you hit, if you hit a bump that's designed to provide support throughout the stroke, 
It's designed to keep the chassis level. It's designed to resist against body roll. So, body roll. The digressive valving for me, it's just better at if I'm trying to get the person's shock to absorb bumps better. It's, I think it's one of it's. I don't have a lot, a multitude of technologies that my to you know sort of to use. Like I'm using what whatever Fox has aftermarket. I'm not you know. I'm not drilling pistons and dynoing things and making my own shims. I'm just going with some, you know, other configurations that the manufacturer has. And digressive valving has the ability to blow off on high speed bumps, which to me that makes because so much when it's of the moving difference. Fast more oil is flowing. So much of the right. difference. Yeah. And right. and at low speeds there's more damping which is beneficial for cornering. So it's like So and the, I would but but there's one thing though. Remember that there is a there's a very small zone which it's hard to conceptualize. Mm-hmm. The shock does have to accelerate up to speed, so you do have to pass through those low, ships. The 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 shaft once you once the bump hits the wheel, it does have to accelerate up. So there is mm-hmm. a pass through which could cause so the, chatter. Well, could the, cause a little bit of heart small so bump harshness. Know, well, you know what's I've, so I've been. As I've been reading about this stuff, I'm learning and I'm like reading forums, not be, not to gain information, but because I'm wondering if I want to start weighing in on these conversations and like, you know, I don't even remember, even refer people to get revalves, you know, getting into some of these forums where people are talking about what are these codes mean on my Fox shock or whatever. They just and, want to shout you down on forums, but <laughs> don't get involved. <laughs> but what you're, um, what you're saying there is, is really valid so with the digressive so the with a digressive piston, the shims are preloaded. Right. So the shims are pressing up. They're they're pressing up either the the pistons either dished or the shims are preloaded in a way to where they're kind of like spring loaded against the face of the piston, which has holes right. in it, and the oil flows through the holes, and it has to open those shims for every bump. So every right. bump that comes through there and breaks through those shims has to still break through those shims. Right. It's Whereas, the, you, in order to get to the high-speed damping, you got to pass through the low-speed damping. And you looked at, on that chart that you just looked at, the starting points for those lines were very different. The digressive line was way higher supportive at the beginning, and, the, and this yeah. is speed-sensitive. The linear valve was way lower on the force chart. So, right. like, and this is where... The description of bump compliance in quotes comes in because I think that there is an established theory or, or 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 explanation pathology that linear valving provides better bump compliance, and there and that what they're thinking is like bump little little bumps, chatter. little chatter. And what I'm saying is bumps are mid stroke. I don't care about the little chatter, and I almost don't even care about the stiff damping at the beginning at the low speed, sort of like the stuff the the breakthrough. As long as it's tuned right for your weight, like obviously you don't want to be yeah. having to push into your bike in order to get it to absorb bumps. This could be the argument for tire pressure tuning zone because you do have two inches of travel in your tires that should be taking up the the pebbles and the gravel. Right. I I really when I think when I when somebody tells me my bike's not absorbing bumps, I'm not going to go after the little chatter. I'm gonna go after I mean, the mid stroke. What if there's like what if there's like noticeable stiction? I mean I mean a lot of yeah. times when people come in saying that 
they have like notable sticks in their suspension and stuff too. That that's such a that's that is the point to make. Is that if you want if you want like if you want bump probably the proper way to say it is noticeable since he's (laughs) you're probably no better than me and you pointed it out. Well, like that is like if you're talking about rocks and gravel and those little teeny movements, that's exactly what you're talking about. You're talking about oil in the lowers and clean, you know, a clean, well lubricated suspension will do that. You don't really need to have this like super, super open valved top end that like ramps up towards the, you know. Right, because we kind of talked about this. Like, I think the, we're both right, Ox, sorry. It could be notable. Like, it is, like, exceptionally, like, worthy exceptionally of worthy of detention. Well, yes. the definition, oh, yeah. worthy of attention or notice, remarkable. Could be, so that's you know notable. That, and, you know, yeah. to go back onto the point you said about that EXT shock. Yeah. So, like, and this goes into another whole point that I've of. been learning, but. It's definitely noticeable. Sorry. Yeah, exactly. So, sorry. like, with shocks, the the IFP pressures is well, the IFP is a part of the shock. That's it's basically a chamber that has some air in it. And I just, just I'm trying to describe it in a way that's not going way over people's head, but it's, it's, a, it's, it's but, a way for oil to expand, but it's, it's a, a pressurized oil system with like a thing pushing down on it with air. Right. Correct. Yeah, it's, and, and, it's, and it's, the pressures vary. It's a rod volume compensator. Right. So when, when a piston goes through a chamber of oil, it's got a shaft attached to it and the shaft takes up volume. So, like, the oil has to have somewhere to displace. It's got to be able to move. Correct. Or expand. So, there's a chamber of air with a piston that separates the oil from the air, and the air chamber compresses when the fluid expands. Correct. And the way you can, if you have ever worked on a shock, even at a basic level, if you have a coilover and taken off a spring or an air shock and taken off the air can, when you push on the shaft and it pushes back, that's the IFP pushing back. Right. And so, so it's basically a way to deal with changes in volume due to oil or, or due to temperature. Correct. And to be clear, because I'm sure someone well, will jump in, volume. it's not the only way, but it's the most common right. way. There's totally way. there's different te- technologies. There's the re- like a bladder would be reactive, maybe another way. The through, no, sh- through shaft, through shaft a, is one way. Shaft. But the the hazard with through shaft is you have compression forces on an O ring with the through shaft on the compression side. AMP did this initially, AMP research. They did through shaft designs where there's no net volume change. But the problem is when you take a hard hit, you you have infinite compression pressures. And then it's controlled by an O-ring. You just you, you take a hard hit, you spit the O-ring out the back. Man, I love when we find infinity. <laughs> <laughs> well, so the, the IFP to pressure, is it has a pretty... I guess it, it affects the way the shock feels a lot. Yes. The, 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 it's, the shock is designed around, like there's a lot of design factors that go into how a shock works and IFP pressure is part of, part of the design. Like you, you basically, you have an IFP, like a shock requires a certain amount of pressure based on how it's designed. That'd be a good way to describe it. Correct. Um, that EXT shock. So like the a float X2. So in, in the rule of thumb is the lower the IFP pressure the more like plush a shock would be, or like the you can sort of the higher velocities that it could achieve in during well, compression. Like, maybe, well, think you know. of it from a spring standpoint. You have your primary spring, and IFP is like your helper spring. Yeah. So if the helper spring is lower pressure, it's helping less. Right. It's like a yeah. It's so, a little helper spring. So on the chart of IFP pressures, like rock shocks is around three hundred to four fifty. The DPS is five hundred. 
the DPX2 is 150, and the Floatex2 is 125. Now, now, can I just add one thing, though? And this is, this is where you might not be comparing apples to apples. And this is a force equals pressure times surface area. And so you have a pressure pushing against a piston, right? Now, typically, a rock shock uh, piggyback is a smaller diameter, hmm. and a rock sh- and a fox piggyback is a larger diameter. Yeah. So what you described actually might be one to one. Actually, well, because it de- yeah, they all sorry. have their own unique <laughs> compression ratio, hmm. right? But think of it as force. So if the diameter of the piston is bigger. A lower pressure provides the same force as a higher pressure it's on a smaller tire. It's kind of similar diameter. to how you can run a lower pressure in a higher volume tire. Basically, there's yes. A, there's like so some just connection don't, of don't mm. don't ignore the diameter differences mm. in the piggybacks. Mm-hmm. So when you're describing it, and it doesn't, it's not a one to one because remember, you know, surface area is squared, right? So half the diameter is less than half the area. So when you look at those, and they're slightly different, but they're Ha- double pressures that to me that actually makes sense there might be a similar force there they, they might be providing the same helper force mm. so just something to think so about the air so divided maybe, over a larger surface area provides correct so maybe this, the uh-huh. maybe the dps even though it has a 500 pound psi maybe right. it's got like a gigantic it's a bigger piston can so i say those not I, that love, big. I really like i feel like the the DHX or the float X2 is so I like how it feels so much better than the that's DHX2. a different discussion though because that's a main air volume. Yeah, I, I don't discussion. even know if it's connected. Yeah, totally. Yeah, yeah. I just well, we could go into that a little bit. I think it's bit. also a damper discussion, but 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 just as well, a conceptual so, thing, really quick. When I was in college, I worked with someone who did explosives research, and explosions are measured in impulse force and a two psi impulse force will kill you because think of the surface area inches on your body Mm. and times that times two for every square inch and then smack you with that force it'll kill you it's hundreds and hundreds of pounds thousands of pounds Mm. so So, then the rule of thumb may not be very accurate of a rule of thumb you really have to do some other math to really compare the the amount of force that's supporting the oil correct and then ifps on inline shocks again it's a different diameter piston yeah well so that in comparison though that ext shock the ifp is 50 psi it's one of the lowest of its lowest ifp pressure it appears to be big okay i was thinking that it's probably a really high flowing piston design yeah, yeah, for sure. You know, the piston's flowing through the oil, and it's, like, also, like, I mean, that thing's really interesting, too, because Chris Porter was talking about, that was, like, his brand that he kind of endorsed, right? In the It's movie, it's a company like, he's partnered with to develop a shock to his flavor. So, like, the head of the piston on that shock is, like, a two-piston. It's a dual piston. It has a, a an extension on the head of it that when it goes... Like when it basically when it's going to bottom out, mm-hmm. that second piston that, that's like basically looks like a top hat, right? It has its own bore that it contacts at the top at the end of its stroke, and it has its and then it has a, a poppet that's adjustable, and so it has a hydraulic bottom out, right? Basically, and what was funny was I was looking. They have charts on their website, and I was looking, and it's like you know 
the word progressive gets thrown around because it's like, oh, it's got this hydraulic bottom out. But if you look at the curve, it's digress, it's digressive, and then it till the and end. then it bottom out. Yeah, and then till the right. end, and then it bottoms out. But what that what that is is positional sensitive damping, and like KTM on their motorcycles, particularly the rear shocks that have no linkage, they achieve positional sensitive damping with a tapered needle. Mm-hmm. That inserts into a piston and, and restricts flow. Yeah, because it's like theirs. Theirs has a tapered needle too, with like right. a poppet that yes. opens. Right, you know, so, and you can adjust. And in fact, like the I've been reading, you know, Avalanche. You know yeah, that guy. I'm, I'm aware of it. He his like speed sensitive damping. That's why it's what's funny is like so digressive damping has a lot of terms, a lot of marketing terms. Like like all, DVO calls it dynamic damping. All damping, all hydraulic mm. damping is speed sensitive. <laughs> And then the avalanche guy, he calls his speed sensitive. Because even a progressive is speed sensitive. Every hydraulic flow situation is speed sensitive. Except for the ones that have some also location sensitive, right? Uh, Position sensitive is also. Right. But it's, uh, I I think the point I'm making is a lot of, they've marketed as speed sensitive damping. It's like, well, yes, that's what it is. That's what damping is. Yeah. yeah, Well, in his defense, he's like, well, yeah, but this is speed sensitive damping that performs well. You know what I mean? Because his is like speed sensitive that like blows off on a bump, not, right. you know, right. doesn't provide more support on a bump. And one thing, so let's go to automotive because I feel like these terms, they get identities in other areas, not, right. not bikes. So in the off-road truck world, digressive damping is the worst thing you could possibly have for your truck. If you want to go trophy trucking down the down the road and you want to see your wheels going up in and down into the fender, that is not going to happen with digressive unless you are going super fast and you're probably not going to have any teeth by the time, you know what I mean? Like you're right. going to be going 60 miles an hour through a whoop section. Right. But in a truck though, you can't bounce your butt up and down and make the bike cycle or the truck mm. cycle 60% of its travel. You, so you can't induce it that way. It has to all come from the ground. Yeah, when and typically in order to provide the support for a multi thousand pound vehicle, they're talking about that's a lot of shims, like a lot. Of, you know, it's it's yeah. all designed different. It has a the the support load, you know, yeah. for the for like where they're specking that shock to be able to support that vehicle. A bump is not gonna blow through. You know, it's not sensitive right. enough to blow off. You're talking about a thousand pound. You know what I mean? It's, um, it's very different numbers. That's why people get their stuff on when you go to the moto world. That's why people get their stuff revalved because you're talking about how much how much does a motorcycle weigh? Like, like a few hundred pounds. Like well, it's a yeah. little more. You can you can fine tune it to where it does blow off. You know, you got your body weight added into the weight of the vehicle, and you know you're. But most like Bilstein and um, King suspension, that's all linear or progressive. So yeah, like when you're sense. upgrading your truck suspension to, to something that is, you know, going to be better for bumps, it, it's going to be the opposite of like mm-hmm. what I'm talking about because you're talking about a, a vehicle. And you're talking about too like because there this, might, there this might chassis be. cannot roll. Like I mean, well, seriously. Yeah. And <laughs> there might be times up. where you're going 100 miles an hour on the open and the velocities on the shafts are much higher. Right. So you're going to want the damp the dampening to be better, the greater. Yeah. 
Yeah, like if you're in going, yeah, you want you want that plush top end, but when you actually hit a bump, like that truck, and you're going the truck that you're driving, you really are like bottom out super hard on the chassis. You really are going 100 miles an hour, maybe. Yeah, or more, or more, right? (laughs) So that's why digressive can get a bad get gets kind of like a bad name. It's like in those in those worlds, it's not what you want for performance. So also with with trucks, the other thing is there is wheel momentum hmm. a, a, a trophy truck tire and wheel is freaking heavy totally and has momentum mm. that needs to be controlled with yeah. the damper mm. like, a bicycle wheel is not that heavy <laughs> right so why is it that i've been actually thinking about this we resized the custom dps it's um for your rain for my rain right um, we had built it up, uh, custom DPS, digressive compression light, as well as digressive rebound light. Medium. Wait, wait, you said medium rebound. You mean DPX? Nope. DPS. S. Oh, okay. Can no, you clarify DPX, DPS? So uh, the I don't know what the DPX, the DPX2 is the resi shock. It's like the, okay. it's like the. The DPS is the standard flow shock. Inline, correct. Dual piston. It basically stands for dual piston system, and then the DPX2 is dual piston system times two, because it has a resi. Got it. Okay. And then the float X2 is the... That's the downhill big can. Correct. Yeah. But man, that resized um, custom DPS (laughs) performs really well on the rain. Right. And I, I swapped it with the float the float X two. Um, I mean, you save three quarters of a pound. The big, How the big can. I was shocked about the weight. Yeah. How much it's, is your rain winner? See, it's it's going to get under twenty eight, but it's twenty eight point two. Okay, I put seal into my tires, and mine's up to twenty eight point six. See, I think like yeah. So mine mine would be without all the with all the, with all the tape and the ghetto like uh. Uh, uh, segmented chain state protector and what have you. It would be it's twenty eight point four right now with sealant, and then it would be. So I think actually, if I put the one up seat post and the maybe the lighter bar and stem, might get actually close to twenty seven under twenty eight. Anyway, I noticed the damping in the one up bar. By the way, that's sick. I'm feeling it. That's, that's that. Can I can I give you an actually? Yeah, yeah. it's gonna be flex. The okay, one-up bar fair. is, no, yeah, is yeah, flex. Yeah. Okay, I I noticed the softening of the bumps, and right. you're right. Yeah, it's not a it's not a speed controlled softening. Right. Uh, that that's an undamped you could say spring. It simulates a damping effect. <laughs> an to sell it to it a would, customer. If if that ha- if that bar had like a foam or rubber insert, you might get damping of the right. flex of the bar. Right. But I think that bar is no, an I agree un- with you. undamped it's, spring. Yeah. It still feels so- It feel- still feels less harsh. Bump compliance, yeah, flex flexibility. But you're right. I misused the word damping there for sure. So how many times did you ride your rain with the Float X2, though? Mm, that's true. Probably not too many times. No. So here here would be the big Maybe question. Maybe three or four, but yeah. I think a lot of people, so you're talking about going to a very basic a cross-country style inline Fox Shock from a DH style Fox X2, big can DH. This is the customer's request. Right. Mm. Now, here here's, a, I'm going to anticipate the listener question. It and this is why would a lot of people say from that shock upgrade to an X2, and I think one of the big arguments is going to be heat management 
which translates into length of downhill Correct. and fading of damping. Correct. Do you do you notice any of that, or have you done a long enough downhill that you feel induces it? Yeah, see, so that's what I've kind of been thinking about as well. Maybe the longest downhill is... 1,000 vertical? Five minutes at the most. Yeah, I minutes. thought of you the other day, Nathan, I got to the bottom of um, Laguna, like TNA, which isn't a huge descent. Three minutes. And uh, yeah, my rear shock was like pretty hot. Like I touched, I was like, Oh, it's hot. Which, which one is that? Ah, uh, what bike? I think that was my, and it probably does need a rebuild. That was my trance, I think. So that was a, so it's an in line. No, it's a no, piggyback. It's got a piggyback. 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 Okay. But they get hot. Air shocks get hot. So there's, there's, maybe I'm not going fast this, enough. This is like the episode. <laughs> yours into yours the probably weeds. gets hot. This is a tech. So th- this is the episode into the weeds, but Brandon, I'm curious. This is something that I would love if you at some point got interested in also and could play tennis with me on this one. But there are oils with, I believe uh, you want to look at, we talked about that on va- our ride. You want to talk, look oh, at we're vaporization. Get into, we're get into it. <laughs> I'm just talking about whether the shock is hot to the touch at the bottom. Right, right. Yeah. But, but what, or, I'm not or, saying what it's doing. Or like, or if it felt perfor- fine still. No, or if the performance changes as it gets hot, That's, like which shock is more likely to change in performance how, as it gets right. hot. And then the question I would be, how with, long would you need to ride and how hot would it have to get? To no, and no, what would happen in the, it's not changing the damping characteristics, but I do think it's changing the spring. The spring. No, you here think, here's you think it's more likely to change the spring characteristics. But here here's the I have a coworker who dug way into this rabbit hole for work and applied it to bikes is uh, here's one assumption path. As the shot gets hotter, it changes the characteristics of the oil and then changes the damping. So what characteristic, what property of the oil could you look at to choose an oil that's more temperature sensitive? What he found, I believe, is an oil called Redline. And I believe the characteristic Mm. you're looking for is called, it might be vaporization temperature. Mm. But weren't we all agreeing that that happens? That's boiling point. Weren't we all agreeing that that happens way higher temperatures than what we're talking about? Well, especially under pressure. Especially under pressure. I... Uh, boiling I work with a fellow pressure. who would disagree. Okay, so well, I, I don't know. I thought well, so, you guys. I thought well, you were no. telling me that, and I just bought it. Well, but. here's what here's what's going on with the vapor and the oil and a shock is that it's constantly so there is vapor molecules in all oils. Most oils. I'm not an oil guy, but oil has vapor molecules within it. Let's so when you apply pressure to something the boiling point goes up. So it's harder to vaporize. When you remove pressure or apply a vacuum to something, the boiling point goes down. So with any kind of oil, if you were to put it in a clear syringe and pull a vacuum on it, you could generate some vapor molecules in the oil. It would kind of permeate to the top, but just like it would look like there's bubbles coming out of the oil. Some kind It's called degassing oil in some cases right. or whatever or degassing dot fluid or whatever. Um, In a shock, you have a piston flowing through a cylinder. And in front of the piston, let's say on a a compression stroke, in front of the piston you have a, let's call it the high-pressure side. And on the rebound side of the piston you have, let's call it the low side. So let's say there's a high-velocity compression cycle. You're going to have high-pressure develop on the front of the piston and low-pressure develop behind the piston. 
what that does is it changes the boiling point of the oil and it changes changes how these vapor molecules react. So under the low pressure, deep cycle, let's say so there's examples of this on YouTube. You can you can YouTube clear shock cavitation. And you can see that there's design there's clear shocks where you can watch this happen. And under under compression, you can see that on the high side of the piston, the oil is stable. It's oil. On the rebound side of the piston, it's unstable. It's vape it's got vapor molecules within it. And then as soon as the piston comes back down and the pressures equalize, the oil returns back to a stable molecule. So there are probably oils. There oh, there's definitely oils that are resistant to that vaporization. There's, I mean, this is how shock, shocks have to be designed to resist the vaporization. That's why IFP pressure, from what I've found through my research, is IFP pressure and piston design and shim design and base valve design and, and all of these different fluid pathway designs, they all basically require a certain amount of pressure from the IFP. The shock, the oil has to be pressurized a certain amount because the shock has a tendency to cavitate on the rebounds, you know, whatever, whatever scenario it is. So oils that have a higher, if you have an oil that has a higher vaporization temperature, like you designed that, the more that you're like cycling that and you're building temperature, building temperature, the less likely it is to vaporize and cavitate. And, and you may have a more, more consistent performance, even when the shock gets hotter. Well, yeah. and that, to that, it's just that being said, when a shock is normally working and there is, there is cavitation happening all the time that affects stamping. Right. When there's small vapor what? molecules in the oil, that affects how they flow through the piston and it creates, it can create inconsistencies. And on a dyno, it can look pretty weird. I wonder how long of a downhill I'd need to, need to ride before like the DPS got noticeably well, the, affected the performance the, over the X2. Do you guys the, even vaporize your damper fluid though? Seriously? Do you guess? Do you vapor- I don't know. Here's, That's why I'm it, wondering. Like maybe I'm not going fast enough or the downhills aren't long enough in, in the parks could, and in the rides that we're doing that. Probably. Here's the I cor- saw your you summit times. It, I think you're going fast. <laughs> you got to take it to Summit. Maybe take yeah. it to Summit and do some Or the Gaves, right? Yeah. The same Gaves where you yeah. got like a 20 minute. Yeah. Well, here's the, here's the question I would have. And this, this is a question. I, I'm just going to plant this seed. Because you're going to be back on this show many times in the future, Brandon. Um, is that is there possibly outside the bike industry an oil that exists that you could build an inline DPS shock that would have similar heat damping or heat dissipation characteristics of an X2? <laughs> and I would I've been looking into this because I want to kind right. of provide it as like a performance advantage. Well, and I yeah. But here's the here's the reason though was that I wasn't actually thinking about it for the DPS because the DPS has a 500 psi IFP. So like, and those things never cavitate. They, they so la- can they last we, a really long time or aerate. I was wondering aerate. if the IFP pressure. Well, is but the cavitation turns into aeration sometimes. So that so there's right. here's something that through my learning I've kind of like. I mean, I wasn't imagining this or or uh, contemplating this the correct way, but whenever a shock came in, well, I mean, I st- started using the terminology aerated as, as in in response to hearing cavitation and not really knowing truly what it was. Like I was like, I I kind of understand what it is, but 
Cavitation is a vacuum. Is a slamming back of a vacuum forming. Well, that's, that's what. Cavita- well, that's well, that's the the environment in which cavitation can happen. I think can, cavitation is just a vapor molecule that's not compressed back into the liquid, and it's now stuck in the damper somewhere, and it's like causing a really inconsistent area of like it's basically so a it giant air bubble inside there and never and never got compressed back into oil. I, I might respectfully and, disagree well, here, with that. Well, here wait, well, wait, I don't know. no wait, because I would just, let's get into the oil. So your big vapor molecule com- forms. The oil now is compressible. The IFP pressure compresses the oil. It moves the IFP. It depressurizes the IFP. Now the IFP is depressurized because the fluid's aerated, and the fluid has now been compressed by the pressure of the IFP, and you've lost all pressure in the IFP. Okay. I and what you it was think is leak in the past, exactly. Yeah. So you're like, where the air go? Like the the air must have went from the IFP chamber into the oil. No, like the cavitation caused a vapor molecule to expand. Then the oil collapsed. Then the IFP oh, pressure collapsed. There's nothing, and that's why. Like with so then I'm like, it's blowing my mind. I'm like reading this, and I'm like, wait, 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 wait. Floodex twos come in aerated all the time. Like what's the problem? And it's they have a low IF. Uh, my theory is that they have a low IFP pressure. They're susceptible to cavitation. It's not really a flaw. The shock performs in order to gain that level of performance. I think you may have this may be somewhat of a requirement. Um, other shock manufacturers would probably be like, "Hell no, that's not a requirement." Like, you know what I mean? Like they're, compa- they're like like yeah. push is probably like no. So here's here's the fun part about cavitation is cavitation is, is some vacuum has to be formed, right? Let's say it forms. How does it form? Think of a vacuum as like a syringe yanking back on it. And here's here's the theory that I understand is an IFP is a piston, has a certain amount of mass. And when you slam it forward with a certain amount of mass, it has a certain amount of momentum and can draw a vacuum. And that's the argument for a bladder system. The bladder doesn't have the momentum of an IFP piston and thus on those super you, high speeds. I thought I asked earlier if bladder is an alternative to IFP. And- it is It is an alternative to IFP. We what, what we were talking about earlier was a bladder and an IFP do the same thing. They compensate right. for rod volume. There's another way to just have have a pass-through. That's what you we were talking about. You said there was another alternative, and I thought you said that. Yeah. I, now I understand that you weren't no, saying I think bladder that is not an alternative. It's my understanding that the theory behind a, a bladder is that you will cavitate less because there's less momentum that's of, interesting of the of the physical property now it's hard to wrap your brain around but it's super fast it's small but it does have momentum i was thinking originally in my theory that like the so i've been advising customers that bring their flowdex twos in that they need to because first of all they're fully capable of doing this that most customers don't know that they're capable of but checking your ifp pressure and I and they, because it has that cover on there, and IFP pressures have kind of like they used to be adjustable back in the day. You'd have a big Schrader cap on there, and you'd yeah. you'd pop it off and adjust your IFP. Now it's not really a thing. And at one twenty PFI or one twenty five psi over a year, over six months, dude, that's not going to be one hundred twenty five psi in there after you're using it. Like, the DVO is adjustable, right? Yeah, yeah. DVO still uses, and they use that's, bladder too. The DVO, that's a. That's a tuning parameter. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, in, in most shocks, it is a tuning parameter. Right. But it also is... With a minimum. It's also a design 
it's also designed into the it's kind of baked into the design because of the it has to resist the that cavitation that's going to be your minimum ifp pressure so that's why like with the dps like they rarely ever come in aerated and i'm like thinking okay well maybe it's because they have a 500 psi ifp pressure and then the float x2s come in aerated all the time and they never have like a obvious sign of like leakage in the in the ifp or anything like that so that was i was thinking about that and then i was wondering if that's where the idea well what if you use an aftermarket oil for for the float x2s to kind of like mitigate that sort of short service interval that they have because basically the reality of it is is they have a short service life you need right. to service them every year. They're not a two-year shock. Or even every, every, every 100 or 150 hours of riding. Like, yeah. It's yeah. more of a – Yeah, it's – the direct measurement would be a hours of service or yeah. cycles. And mm-hmm. it feels good, though. I really like the feel of that system. Yeah, right. and yours – and I it'd be rad to uh, see what – Don't get me a, wrong. It does feel really good. Well, it'd be rad for you to see what a CL would feel like, too, because that's probably a CM. And so, like, yeah. that shock could even be, like <laughs> – my More. personal preference okay. is I like the inline shocks and the and the X two shocks. I'm not a big fan of the DPS shocks and how they just how they feel to me. DPX, DPX. Yeah, no, right. well, oh, you like the DPS? I like but the, not feel the, of the DPS. Too. Yes, and, and like, the float X, but not the DPS and the too. DHX, but yeah. the DPX. Yeah. You know, a lot of people don't like the DPX too, and I have never seen one specced with a light piston or a light shim stack. Like I've ah. never seen one specced. OE with one aftermarket. They all come with CM and I've had a few customers come in for revalves on them. Um, and the CL there's actually a few different shim stacks available, but the CL is, is it really is a game changer for that shock. Yeah. Like it I feel makes like it that feel system so doesn't better. handle big hits bet well at all. Like I feel like it feels really harsh on big hits. Can, can I add an anecdotal the, story? Extra shims in there. I, I have a quick anecdotal story. This is something I heard from a friend of a friend of a friend through the grapevine. Is that uh, up until maybe this year, Ibis has, for example, has really rethought their damping curves. based up on, until this year? Based on meaning, I think high-end bike companies using data acquisition have really rethought some of their damping ideas as recent as the last year ibis? or two and are they, did they you go said ibis did ibis, they go yeah. digressive or well, I, I don't I've know i well i've looked at an ibis and there uh, there was a customer what they have a female specific frame i i don't know that i've seen an ibis oe shock on a brand new bike that was specced with digressive compression extra light mm. wow it, it was a female specific frame too so extra light kind of made sense that was actually that's one of my i think those are my customers that I think benefit from the revalves the most or some of the very light, some of the female riders that we have, especially ones where their husband's the one that bought them the bike. The husband's <laughs> like, feels great. All, like the medium valve. And they're <laughs> like, like, this thing is bucking me all over the place. 190 yeah. pounder. It's great. <laughs> feels great. Wow. Honey. Interesting. I've, I did a, I built a shock for a Bronson two, like a new Bronson. Yeah. A float shock. DC XL for mm. a light female rider and she loves it it was actually an mtb allen you know mtb allen yeah it was his wife's bike nice and it was amazing because i i've i know her well enough to be able to say that she's not the kind that would be like suspension savvy she wouldn't consider herself suspension savvy but she went out and rode the thing 
probably for a couple weeks, took it to Summit, you know, wrote it for a couple weeks. And she said that it's supportive in cornering, but feels still feels confident through the rock gardens. And I feel like I'm using more of my travel than I ever had on bumps. And I was like, okay. I can tell you that <laughs> like, it's just like, to, okay, that's to that kind of what I was aiming for. Mm-hmm. Like, it's, it's so cool. To that note, I might have a an older fox coil over coming your way for just such a magical the sprinkling. One on the evil, yeah, yeah. They make um, shim stacks for those. They also make shims for the that zochi that you have on your on your Ramadana. Yeah, mm-hmm. so, and they can revalve your ransom too. It's just pretty cool because I, I I know that the ransom would feel better with a digressive valve. I know it would, yeah. and like I like it, and to the point where I'm like, dude, I want to build one and ride that. <laughs> <laughs> um, here, here's one question I had noted down, and th- this is something that I had thought about for a while. Trying on the ransom, I was going to try an upper uh, shock eyelet needle bearing. So normally oh, there's yeah. a bushing, but here's what I wanted to do, and this is what I'm curious. Can you is, do that? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Upper, with like a, you have one. to use like in, you, know, you have to use enduro, like R, the RWC. Yeah. The, so yeah. here's but here's what I was thinking about doing with that, and this is what I'd be curious, especially when you're experimenting maybe with us or with Ock, is pre and post uh, shock whiz. Run mm. the shock whiz before the change with the bearing. Make, I was going to do it with the bearing. Oh yeah, that'd be. Cool. I was going to do pre and post shock whiz, but for revalving. Mean? Maybe you could start doing it with revalving, it, oh, just should. to gather data. Is be like, what is it telling me? I can change. I have the shock. Hey, do a few runs, gather some data, get it settled on the shock whiz, make the change, take it ba- back out with the shock whiz, and not so much. If to I use had a customer guides. who wanted to do that, then we totally would. There's an there's the yeah. people that I've been working on their stuff so far. There are people who are like they call and they're like. Yeah, I want the CL for my DPX too. <laughs> you know, they're like kind of know already. Yeah. Um, but nobody's been, you know, using the Shockwiz in that way yet. Man, that would be. Crazy. But I keep telling them. I like, like, I actually have people who have come back with the Shockwiz and said, and they say it says I need to open up compression, and I'm like, well, that means that like I can do that, but it it's two hundred bucks. Right. <laughs> you know, it's right. not. Well, can, it's, it's not just like and, a knob. <laughs> and I'm not so much. I'm not so much saying use the shock whiz to tell you how to tune the shock. What I'm really curious about is what the shock whiz is seeing in the difference. Now, in my case, I want to see if it tells me I can up, say, the air pressure when I add a needle bearing on on the eyelet, right? That's what I would anticipate. Uh, I guess it's a way of saying I don't 100% trust my feel. Oh, right. But to say the shock whiz noticed the action difference the shock whiz noticed does the whiz (laughs) notice yeah so i I was just curious if that's a tool you could use and maybe there's something you could do data acquisitions really like the end all be all as far as being scientific like darren from push came in and visited the shop which was super cool and we got to kind of like talk with him a little bit um, because they opened uh they started they basically have a service center uh in san marcos is a company or a shop called uh, fluid focus and so basically like he services the 116 now he's been blessed which is nice because it's an hour away from us so whenever i sell and one super cool yeah. whenever i sell one i'm like your service center is an hour away like you know it's pretty yeah. nice and um i was asking him because he was we were having a seal a conversation about their wiper seals and i was like and and about oils too and i was right. like 
and he does a lot of dino research like i mean that's like the backbone of their company is like him being like well the dino says you know (laughs) what i mean and so yeah i asked him i'm like you know i can talk about how the wiper seals feel all day but like what does the dino say you know like when what does the dino say i was like what does the dino say about oil he was like oh yeah it's there like there's definitely changes when you use different oil like on on the dino the dino can sense those changes and it's like wow Okay. Well, thinking as far as until you guys maybe invest into a higher end data acquisition system, the shockwiz is what you have at hand. Yeah. To to gather data in the field, and you know, it I, my gripe. Well, I still need to use it to make this gripe, but it does give you actions versus data. Right. You know, mm-hmm. it, yeah. it gives you recommendations. It kind of skips a couple steps, but at some point maybe you guys will get a yeah so after using it you'll get you a have feel to extrapolate for like, data from the suggestions right yeah in my case i'm just curious if a needle bearing will make an effect enough to have a shock oh i would pressure say i'm gonna say almost for, I, would, yeah. I would hypothesize for sure yeah yeah most people that install them are changing their damper settings to adding more low speed compression damping when they install that bearing right yeah and it fox just made one it's a it works for a couple of frames, but the one that we are commonly uh, ordering and selling is the 30 mil for the Santa Cruz's. So like if yeah. you have a Santa Cruz low link and you have a Fox shock, there's a bearing eyelet for it now and you can stop replacing your Agus hardware every six months. Right. Mm-hmm. And get better performance. Yeah. Get yeah. Way better performance. Yeah, is that absolutely. linkage? Basically, if you look at the, one of the eyelets in the shock and that linkage looks like it's spinning a lot. Yeah, like it has to like turn in order to move the shock. Then generally, you probably it's one use a bearing. Si- yeah, it's one side or the other. Yeah. And the then RWS, which is enduro enduro bearings, I think is the it's, same company or something. Uh, it's no RWS is a guy who sells a lot of enduro bearings, enduro seals. And I think the needle <laughs> oh, and, bearing kit is kind of his, his okay. thing. Those are cool. I've installed them. They have different tolerance pins because. You know, there's a little variance in eyelet and pressing the needle bearing in, and so like you basically like size the pin, yeah, um, based on like how how much resistance it kind of feels like. You're basically just kind of making it so it doesn't have play, yeah. Um, so that's nice. I've had never had one not work. I've just sized yeah. it, and it seems to work pretty awesome. Yeah. Um, well, just as a, we've kind of, I I think on the last show we said something about answering listener questions. We're about an hour and a half in, and I know Brandon's going to be back again and I'd still has a, another ocean of information. I feel like to you guys always us. talk about answering listening questions, and then you never do. Should <laughs> Should we just go go there maybe are, twenty more minutes and say, you know what, this is a long show, and we're going to get to listener questions? Do we want to do that? We can do that. It's not that. It's not that long. Okay. I mean, it's long. You guys want to answer a listener question? Should we should we do it? We should do it. I, but I want to say I don't want to cut it off. But Brandon will be back. I think that I was I've been milling over a lot of that stuff lately. So there's so a lot I, of things. That was, no, that was, I think we got a lot of it out, right, Ock? Yeah. I mean, <laughs> we, we, I feel like we should have hit record when we went bike riding the other day. And that was a good hour. Bikes. That was a good hour and a half like conversation. There's a, some good overlap. I like Reg's Ox writing schedule. It's in. It's basically when nobody else is awake. <laughs> <laughs> it's either six a.m. or and usually not. It wouldn't be a, in the wee hours of the night. Which sometimes right. I like to entertain the idea that like I'm going to start this like 
I'm going to call it the the pain ride, and we're just going to go ride in the middle of the night, like, like once a week. <laughs> yeah, it's just... <laughs> and it doesn't ever happen, though. See, that, the other day I was asking, I was asking Brandon, is this, like, really your, your natural ride time, and you're kind of cool with it, and, you know, kind of get a sense, like, yeah, that's... The, the schedules are kind of overlapping because for a while, Nathan and I would do kind of rides about that time, like early in the morning. And, and after a while, Nathan, it's <laughs> like, dude, this is a little early. <laughs> I need to like adjust the schedule a little. Well, it's because it, it's, <laughs> it, it's it really is. Well, it's a it, difficult it, thing if you don't have those drivers. And yeah. as in my case, as a, an, uh, I don't want to say single, I have a girlfriend, but unmarried no kid laden especially right. this time of year my motivation to jump out in the cold when it's going to be warm at 10 yeah very pleasant at 10 yeah, exactly <laughs> yeah but i realize it doesn't no, that doesn't work with that's why there's like schedules. absolutely no judgment on that it was just kind of like yeah it's cool no totally and i love me sleeping in on a saturday <laughs> mm, 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 9 a.m waking up that's good uh you know when i like to wake up after a good night's sleep. When I wake up. <laughs> <laughs> and sometimes that might be nine or ten. Or it maybe. might be six or five, too. Yeah, fair enough. I like to go, bed, to go to bed at a time that leans more towards early, if I can. Right. But Okay, listener question. Okay. Uh, thanks for your recent episode on overbiking. The whole thing was entertaining and enlightening. But as one who's looking... Soon to get off a 2006 Kona Stinky. Shout out to 2006 Kona Stinky. Nice. And live in eastern North Carolina. I'm thinking about how much bike I actually need versus how much I want to have on tap for going out into the mountains or doing dream trips to Colorado or the Northwest. For the trails closest to my house, I'm sure I can get by with 120. I think he means millimeters of travel. But I also like doing jumps and drops and want to be able to do something like Whistler with the same bike. Since right now, one bike is the only thing in the budget. So I think I'm definitely one who would tend towards overbiking. Thoughts? So my initial thought is when you go to Whistler, rent a downhill bike or a heavy-hitting enduro bike that you, is probably more overbiked than what you want for your daily rider. I that probably just, that might be the most important thing. Depends on your frequency, but he's describing what sounds like a once a year trip, and yeah, maybe you're. I mean, for riding the Whistler bike park, I would feel a lot more comfortable on a real enduro bike or a downhill bike than on anything bordering on trail. Yeah, that sounds reasonable. Even something bigger than like yeah. your Mega Tower or my Mega Tower was good in. Is good in that kind of environment, I think. Especially, but but that's a big hitting enduro bike. That's like probably more right. than the overbiking this person's thinking about. And you have that bike set up for a two bike stable, right? Downhill isn't, tires. Yeah, isn't cool. North Carolina? I we had a podcast listener come visit from North Carolina, and he was more XC. Like their trails were smoother. Mm-hmm. Well, they, I'm sure there's rough trails out there. So well, I think this person's ride fantasy though is. More gnar from the sound of it. With the right. 2006 even on the, even on the smooth trails, he's going to be trying to find the. It it might be a maybe a terminology to use as a daily ride reality versus a vacation ride fantasy. Yeah, but it's also like like I think of our old friend Johnny Biff, uh-huh. where he would sprint a, a what we what a big heavy long travel bike 
hard enough to make him almost need that bike on the flat parts of riding. <laughs> right. Because he would pedal so hard to like get there. Yeah. So it's like all about this is so rider and riding style specific. But and he yeah. is coming off of a 2006 stinky. Right. So we know he can haul around something squishy and heavy. Yeah. I mean, why not something like a Mega Tower or a Big Bird? Yeah, I think so. They have a. I think they have a a lot of kind of tighter and less steep terrain around there. I think mm-hmm. the Big Bird might be a good choice with that kind of poppier feel for a big bike mm-hmm. or a rain. A yeah. rain, yeah, that is very true. Yeah, man, that rain is so capable. I'm digging mine. The more I ride it, the more I dig it. And like, I think I am going to sell my trance and wait until next time I want to go to the bike park or ride something super gnar to get my mega out. So uh, I have a lot of listeners that reach out via Instagram about seat tube angle. If you've been a long time listener, you know, I've had a seat tube angle obsession and have done overlay pictures to try to get to the bottom of, you know, actual versus reality. And one of my favorite bikes is the Sentinel as you know, or any of the transition, new transition bikes, they have relatively steep actual seat angles. Um, I've done overlays on a lot of the newer bikes and the rain is right on top of a Sentinel. Actually, it's a, I think it's a touch forward hmm. based Yay! on. Yeah. So I wonder if that's why. It so it's a like 76. It it's like a true 76 or something around. There, well, I, I, I hesitate to answer that because it's seat height dependent. Oh, right. So it's a, it's a difficult thing to answer. But what I can say is it's steep. It's, it's very steep. It's respectably steep. As per my preference, say two or three years ago, um, but most bikes coming out now are when I, I I've, I've had listeners ask me, "Hey, can you look at the Jeff Z? You know, the YT Jeff Z? Can you look at the? I looked at the Ramadana. I looked at the Scott. I looked at the Yeti SB 150. I'm not kidding. All these bikes are like." right on top of each other actual it's very negligibly mm. different so we're seeing quite a convergence Interesting. Of, of seat tube angle in not just actual but um uh, theoretical so you know the seat tube angle has some angle and it's located mm-hmm. forward some distance at the bottom bracket these i'm starting to we're notice talking seat saddle position yeah, the the but the seat tube angle and position is just landing on mm. top of each other, bike after bike after bike after bike. Uh, there's very few bikes like, say for example, a huge outlier was the previous generation Santa Cruz High Tower or um, the Intense Carbine Twenty Nine. Intenses were pretty pretty large. These are huge differences. But the new bikes, including the Rain Twenty Nine, the uh, um, Firebird 29, the Scott Ransom, the Transition Sentinel, boom, 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 right on top of each other. Nathan approved. Yeah, yeah. The Mega Tower is a little, little slacker, but it's, it's not, not a big difference. Mm. So, uh, a lot of people ask, ask about that. Uh, I, cool. I, I had a listener question that Can- came through Instagram and, he was just saying, can you guys uh, expand on reach and stack and how to determine what's proper reach and stack uh, when looking at a new bike? He's like, is a personal preference? How do these measurements affect handling feel? So I, I think reach is pretty well known, although maybe we give him a quick rundown, but stack. Well, his question, so there's two parts of the question, right? Like, what are they? And then how to pick the right one? 
Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think for a lot of riders, knowing what they are isn't as important than knowing how to pick the right one. Right. And what I will say is that the right region stack or the bike often going to be so when you know when you pedal like kind of hard to where you kind of want to like get your like you find when you hit a certain pedaling effort you find your chest moving forward you find yourself like hunching over the bars a little bit more yeah Mm -hmm. and that's because you're firing your glutes and some stuff that has to do with putting forth that effort but in that riding effort test ride the bike in that effort and you ask yourself which reaches and stacks do you have less hand pressure on the grips to where you can feel the pressure of the grip on your hand and which reaches and stacks do you have less tension in your neck and shoulders and back. And that's probably going to be the reach and stack that you're going to be happy with. Right. And, and just quick recap, if you don't know, although (laughs) it feels kind of weird after the discussion we just had about suspension to say like, if you don't know reach and stack, but (laughs) we were so into the weeds. Can I just add one more thing? I would look for a reach and stack where, where you're in that like, maybe 60, 70% effort where you start to kind of lean forward. Also, you want slightly bent elbows. So like not straight, not locked, but also not super bent. And um, you want to see like the a, a posture that's a natural posture for that rider. So if that person has like shoulders that aren't, that are kind of when you just stand there, their shoulders look like they're not slooped forward or back or up or down. That's how they should look on the bike too. Right. Mm. I guess just the, the reader's digest stack is how high your handlebar stem originates from and reaches how far out it is. And specifically how far in front of the bottom bracket. All, all centered around the bottom bracket. But remember you can raise your handlebars with spacers underneath your stem or you can raise or lower that, or you can extend or shorten your handlebars with the length of the stem, although that both of those have other implications. Meaning, if you raise your handlebars, um, you might be bringing them closer. They kind of, it is a triangular I'll add something. Thing. Riders who might want a little bit higher stack would include riders with a belly, because your knees might hit that belly. Yeah. It would include riders with any sort of limita- flexibility limitations, including ankle flexibility, neck. hip flexibility, neck flexibility, yeah. um, hamstring flexibility, yeah, core strength. Like someone who's not great on core strength, that might also affect your stack needs. Yeah. Can I, think- I, can I add a quick piece of information, again, for longtime listeners that I, I always talk about sizing up on bikes and things like that and always wanting a longer bike. I've never measured this before. I measured it the other day. I have a plus seven centimeter ape index. So my, my wingspan is seven centimeters larger than my height, which is about two and three quarters inch, which is not insignificant. You know what they say about that. <laughs> <laughs> so that, that could that you fly could, really good. Yeah. <laughs> Ta- Tawny made the comment years ago, you know, I was like, Oh, I like longer bikes. He's like, well, you probably have long arms. He's like, tall guys have long legs and long arms. Sometimes. Sometimes. When they do, especially. Like, what? I, not, it's not so much that all tall guys have long arms and long legs. What I would say is that tall people tend to sometimes defy the proportional standards more than other mm. people. Right. There's just more room to have a yeah. discrepancy. But it's more than that, I feel like. It's like, if you... 
I can't. I can't. You're just gangly and weird. I what are you saying? You're it. gangly and weird. What do you yeah. saying? I like how you said that. No. <laughs> well, things things tend to ex- exaggerate. I bet it. You know? I bet it's the same way on the other end of the spectrum. I bet really short people sometimes have weird proportion, yeah. like proportional differences. Yeah. You know, like well, I have dwarfism in my leg. But, <laughs> but like I, I remember Tony telling me a story, and this was as the podcast progressed. I think someone who actually you know was fairly well versed in the industry asked you, "Is like." is Nathan really off on his sizing? And you've ridden with me and you've seen me and you're like, no, he looks fine. Sometimes scrunched up. Yeah. And I'm, I'm sizing up on recommendations time and time again for a good number of years now. You have really long arms. It could, but it's also that you were slamming your seat all the way forward. Yes. Mm -hmm. Correct. In order to simulate steeper and steeper seating. Right. Yeah. So you were also too, you were kind of like ahead of the curve because you wanted, you wanted a long reach and the bikes weren't really providing long reach. I wouldn't say I was, you were ahead of the curve. I was. You start, don't, have, you don't have to say it. Gravity so. dropper. One gravity thing. Dropper. One <laughs> thing that I dropper. think that people <laughs> can get caught up with in sizing is like they can test ride a bike and think that oh I fit in this large I fit in this thing fine, and I've I've been toying around because I'm on the cusp of a large and extra large because I'm like six one six two ish. See, and to to Tani's earlier point, I'm five eleven extra large all day long, and well I've been riding like. And we're at this era where like the larges kind of got longer this year. Like we size offset from about two years ago. So can you stand chest to test chest and reach your arms out together like this? Yeah. I'm kidding. <laughs> Please let's measure. Um, we could also do the ancient Buchanan tradition. <laughs> I feel like this is like a sumo thing. I, uh... Uh. I was hoping I didn't have to get naked. <laughs> <laughs> no, just bare, on just, just, those just bare feet. Just on um, those skiffies. <laughs> I didn't notice my body reacting to the size bikes I was riding for months. Here's the thing: it, a lot it, of people yeah. who don't size who get a too small of a bike is because when they test ride the bike, they don't pedal at that effort I was talking about. Mm. Right. So they're pedaling around more upright than they're actually going to ride. Mm-hmm. So they think they need less reach than they actually need. Mm. Well, but I've to noticed Brandon's that the point, larges I've been riding, like all larges, large mega, large high tower, large tall boy, and so this is like two, three, four weeks. My lower back, my hips get tight. My lower back gets kind of tight, and my traps, my upper traps get tight. Mm. So those are all, I think, signs that I'm like hunched over a little bit when long sustained climbs. It's kind of having an you effect on, my, on you. Your saddle height looks a little low to me too. Yeah, yeah saddle heights. Well. Recently, though, I've literally gone to XLs because not that I don't like being, I mean, <laughs> I just, yeah, I don't like being tight all the time. I don't like having lower back pain and shoulder pain. Yeah. Um, I still will ride a large if it's what I want to ride and that bike's not available in an XL. But I've been kind of like when I go into the shop and I'm like, what bike am I going to ride? I'm kind of like. What XLs do we have? Because my back's kind of tight, you know. XL. Yeah. So, like, keep that in mind. Like, yeah. I didn't really. And I Neck wasn't, pressure I was, and back pain aren't necessarily something you have to put up with. Yeah, yeah. And this is something just to why I think Brandon adds a lot, and we love having him on the show. Is and this is like this isn't an insult or anything. Brandon doesn't own a bike. Nope. You you so Brandon tries probably more bikes on a frequency than anybody and brand rides a lot he rides a lot and it's he's grabbing something new all, all the time he can in pedal fact, like 37 and three quarter I mean, pound get, get this <laughs> all day long. so you wake up you go outside you walk 
to your to the shop and you just and on your way to the shop you're just thinking what bike should i ride today <laughs> out of the 50 it's pretty rad and yeah. you go in there you're like and i i laugh at myself I was laughing the last ride we had too because we were talking. I was riding the Slayer and I was like, "How much do you think this bike weighs, Ock? Like what, thirty-one pounds, something like that?" And I was like, "I think it's like a thirty-five pound bike, dude." And I'm like, "Don't say that. <laughs> I'm not going to pick it next time." <laughs> I think it's actually thirty-six. You know, now that I know, because we were at the we were at the look. top of a pretty long climb, and he's like, "Dude." I thought it climbed pretty well until you told me that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, after I knew that it weighs 36, I'm like, this thing's a pig. This thing's a slug. In fact, yeah. that's what I said. It was, it was funny because I was like, you totally, you should ride bikes without knowing the specs. Because as soon as I like played into that knowing what, how much it weighed, I was like, feels like a monster truck. It's a total pig climbing. And before that, I was like, this thing doesn't even feel like it's a 29er. It just, it feels so, so like it climbs so great. And then I was like, it has double down tires, yeah, front and rear. That was the start and of it. And I was like, "Oh man, I'm totally double, not going to ride this bike next got time." Got a double down aggressor. I go back it's got there. Got an aggressor on the I'm rear. Like, hmm, I want to ride. I want to ride this new bike that came out. And I'm like, "Oh, we got, we got the like value build." <laughs> like total snob. It doesn't even have Anywhere. carbon wheels though. This is alloy wheels. Like, man, and I was telling, this <laughs> is just awesome. I mean. He's pedaling the Slayer around, you know, all morning, and I uh, was pedaling the rain, and I'm like, man, Brandon is like enthusiastic pedaling this morning, like just slaying, like slaying it, uh, yeah, pedaling that Slayer super <laughs> all day. It's funny. And then I told him it weighed 35 pounds. <laughs> never ride it again. <laughs> Things dead As to me. Is. Just kidding. <laughs> Wait, you close the book on the Slayer? No, no, I no. love the Slayer. Yeah, that Slayer is awesome. Yeah, don't close the book on things. <laughs> you know what? It it's so funny. Like your different perspectives. Because I was thinking, man, Brandon's pedaling that thirty four pound, thirty five pound, thirty six pound bike really well, and he's all day long, like two rides, like two or three rides. We've done this, and I'm like, man, that thing's got a double down aggressor. Maybe I'll try a double down aggressor on the rear. See if it makes me pedal fast. See if it makes me pedal fast. <laughs> I got one in the garage. <laughs> and then when you realized it was a double down, you're like, dude, this is a double down? <laughs> <laughs> so funny. Well, you know what, though? But then I was like looking at like, all like your memories like pass right. through your head, and you're like, that's why it like gets rolling, and then it just keeps rolling <laughs> over stuff. It just rolls over stuff. It was really funny. Yeah. Nice. I've got a podcast listener question oh yeah another one jumping off maybe sort of similar i don't know uh let's see john uh let's see john writes podcast question hi i'm a regular listener to the show i ride a trans 29 and sought out uh the bike in part to the positive things said about it on the show i realized the discussion in terms of giant is moving towards the rain but i have a question i've ridden the stock dps and dvo topaz I see that Auk has a custom-tuned DPS. Uh, then for 2020, there is a RockShox Super Deluxe on the frame only. It would be great if Tani and Auk could quickly address the advantages or disadvantages of any or all the shock options available for the bike. DPS stock versus custom, DVO Topaz, DPX2, RS Super Deluxe. Now let me just say, like, don't get me wrong, I love the rain, but... My ride fantasy for pedaling long and hardened with my like with my hammerhead buddies um through the fire fire roads of the Santa Anas 
is still on a trance. And you have more experience with those shocks than me, so. So I I really think like the park riding, the maybe the steeper, looser, chunkier gnar stuff that been riding locally, like I love the rain. But when I think about a certain group of people that I would ride with, I'm like, man, you know, I think I might just rebuild the trance. Right, but this customer wants to know about rear shocks on the Correct. Trance. So all that to say, like, don't feel bad about having the trance, even though, like, our, our conversation is moving away from the trance and moving towards the rain. Not so, everyone has to overbike. Exactly, <laughs> yeah. And so I think, like, there's a whole category and a whole, like, ride, like, like group that maybe isn't on a rain but is on a trance. And I actually sometimes think, man, there's not a lot of bikes out there that I would build up for that type of riding than a trance. Um, right. Because I think that building that trance up in that way is going to be a super capable downhill bike, down country uh, bike that can be built up probably in the 26 pound range, like 26 and a half pound range that I don't yeah. think I could get the rain there without doing some serious like sacrificing. Right. So, but with that said, uh, as far as the shocks, you know that DVO Topaz felt great. Uh, it's it feels great. Um, I think DVO is. I like to think DVO has worked out the issues with that shock. That kind of you yeah. Know. You guys have talked about that a little bit. They, yeah. it, it would they the bo- the main body bearing for that shock. I think it was my. It might have been an assembly issue or possibly an issue with that part. But it basically it got an updated change. So there's a new body bearing. Um, some of those where the body bearing was, was actually just not torqued properly. It was coming loose and then oil was leaking out mm-hmm. into the air sleeve and it was just, you know, getting all aerated and gross. Um, so, and then they rebuilt a few of those where they just rebuilt it. Mm-hmm. And like, apparently that wasn't enough and they needed to go ahead and change the body bearing out. Perhaps the body bearing was, was loosening itself. Maybe it just wasn't strong enough. I think they used it beefy. <laughs> the ones that I've seen, the new body bearings actually like it's visibly beefier. Mm. Um, so yeah, there, I would consider that problem if that issue resolved. And yeah, that shock's cool. It's got a bladder. It's got an adjustable IFP. Mm-hmm. Did you ever mess with that? I don't think you did. did Not you? too much. I, I was riding mine at oh, you could. 90 PSI, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So that was a cool one. Yeah. And your float is custom. The float is custom. And there again, it was kind of that thing where I put the float on and was hoping to get the similar performance out of it that I that I had in the DVO because the DVO felt great. Um, and I was more than more than satisfied with it. You know, the, I, th- I think there people have listened, there's an undertone to this too as well, that the, the DVOs had a lot of warranty issues. Yeah. And there was something that I just wanted to make sure Brandon got to point out to customers that you mentioned about the warranty policy for path-purchased items. Oh, yeah. I, I think this is important for people to know. Yeah. Well, so... I mean, just to explain our pol- our policy is that anything purchased from the path, the processing fee and the labor associated with replacing or repairing the items is no charge. And the shipping. And any, and any shipping, correct. So it's no charge. It's basically just no fine print. It's no charge. If you have a warranty issue, we take care of it. 
and I guess to give like a should we do like maybe like I guess you could peer behind the curtain a little sure. bit. Sure. Um, well, I I think I, the reason I brought this yeah. up is because I think the un, that between the lines question that the listener has. Mm-hmm. Or what you're trying to address is, oh. hey, if I get the trance with the DVO and yeah. that thing takes a dump. Yeah, what's going to happen? Yeah, like, so, <clears throat> it, but, and Ox's point is, this thing works really good, but it's kind of had a reputation yeah. of, like, an Italian sports car You'd where it's up. awesome. Yeah, but just on that bike. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, Correct. that OE Correct. shock, not their aftermarket Topaz. This Correct. is the Topaz 3 or the Topaz 2, I think. But you moved OE. away from it for warranty issues and we're like, ah, oh, man. It was like a. I would have written that thing forever had it had it not had the. Right, but it turned and into since, like a moody. Yeah. Significant and since he was other. at the path, <laughs> and since he was at the path, I mean, like DVO gave us a loner shock, and like we, so he was never really without a shock, but he did have to drop by the shock and drop it off. You know, like it was a terrible. Obviously, it didn't ex- cost him anything. Correct. Um, because we sent the shock in and, you know, we did all the processing and everything. So let's say if you were somewhere else and you'd, you'd be at the mercy of whatever the dealer's warranty processing uh, policy is. Or to if the vendor themselves interacts with customers, then you might be able to file a warranty claim yourself. I'm not sure about DVO. I, I think you might be able to file a claim right. yourself with DVO and ship it in. Your, so you'd have to pay shipping. They'd fix it for you and you know, you know and send it back. Um yeah. Fox has a one-year warranty. They do interact with customers. You can go online and fill out a return authorization form and send your product in for warranty evaluation. Um, RockShox has a one-year warranty as well. I believe their warranty might vary one to two years. I'm not totally sure. Uh, They want you to go through a dealer. They're not going to file a claim for a customer directly with directly. Um, and then what was the other shock that he asked about? The DVX2. DPX yeah. The same thing. So that Fox, and as far as yeah. performance goes, the but, DPX2 and the DPS are very similar. The DVO has more of a dynamic spec out of the box. It's probably a better at bump compliance out of the, the box. The DVO shines just on squishing on it. On, I've only ridden the DVO on that bike, but like just on squishing sweet. on it, I think it, it feels like it has more small bump compliance. May yeah. I say coil-like? Yeah. yeah, very smooth. Man, that was it was impressive. And right. then with Rock Shocks, Rock Shocks are they're they have good value for like what they offer as far as like getting a shock on your bike and performance-wise, they really do work on a wide range of applications. Say if you're excessively if you're if you're a lighter rider, it might be a little bit heavy of a of a tune out of the box. The thing with RockShox versus some other manufacturers is that they don't they don't have a lot of small parts available aftermarket. So um, if the shaft or the body bearing wears out in a year or two, then that shock is done. You right. get a new shock. They don't sell shafts and body bearings separately. You know, but to that note, if you sent it in for service, they probably have them in their service department perhaps right. and i'm not i wouldn't be able to guarantee that though yeah. i don't i don't know but but i think the main takeaway is just a reminder that you know granted this this show is you know the shop message but the way that someone like brandon or the guys that work with him handle warranties is a very tangible reason to pick a shop like that i think it's different Thank you. and i'll add to that how we handle warranties isn't just a policy. It's a, it's 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 a 
an expression of what evolved organically from making customers happy. Right. Yeah. And I, and we still have that or in other words, if you have a problem that doesn't fit directly into our process, we're still going to figure out how to try to make you happy. Right. Yeah. And we have a lot of tools for that. We have loaner bikes, we have loaner parts, we have rapport with our vendors. We, you know, and, we're ready to go to bat for you. And I think specifically with regards to the DVO, like the fact that DVO would send you, like they were Johnny on the spot with the warranties and they sent you that loaner shock specifically for this bike. So like when I, when I was having those issues and I would bring that bike in, I would walk out with, with the loaner shock and then later in the week, the, the warranty would come back. And I want to clarify one more thing. I think a lot of our listeners know that in the automotive industry, automotive dealerships get compensated by the brands for warranty work. So, you know, if you blow, Somewhat. if some, it's a lower rate than what they charge. Yeah. But they still get they still get paid sometimes. Right, they're all getting paid to change your airbags sometimes. So if you have a if your engine blows up and it's covered under warranty, they're getting some compensation for replacing your engine and so forth. At the bike shop, that's not going on. Yeah, for the most part, it's not. Right. Yeah. And like a, that's part of that's yeah. one thing that I've kind of that's one thing that I push for all the time is like establishing a new norm with our vendors as far as like compensation, not in a pushy or unscrupulous way, but just, just like, yeah. I mean, there's ways I've, I mean, I've actually found there's ways to communicate to your vendors like, okay, well, your labor to replace the, uh, your labor cost to replace that is $60. And, um, so like, you know, you can send that in the form of, uh, any number of these parts or you can give us a credit on our account and you'll get it some you'll get a oh okay whereas like if it's before SRAM. before or well actually if it's SRAM, if it's giant if it's stands if it's that's probably the short list of yeah. off the top of my head and it, it's still a work in progress all right, right. This has been long, right? We're, we're, yep. Can I call it? I'm tired. We can call it. All right. Listeners, thanks for listening. For Nathan, Auk, and Brandon, this is Tawny saying love the bike you ride.